And welcome to the other side of midnight. I'm going to be your host tonight. Uh, Richard's in a situation where he's uh, inhaling smoke from the fires in his area. And uh, tonight we're going to be going back to Mars with a slight detour. Because uh, tonight I'm going to be telling you a lot about me and who I am. And for those of you who are familiar with the show, you know that normally I'm the the technical dad that takes care of uh, the engineering of the audio for the other side of the news and the other side of midnight. I become the air director because Richard does most of the engineering with uh, my assistants. But uh, I felt that you guys needed to have another live show. I should have done the one with uh, uh, James Goodall. But... I let that fall through the cracks uh, because Jim and I had really great conversations uh, about John Lear and about Bob Lazar because uh, we could talk about that for days. But that's not what we're going to talk about tonight. So let me, for those who don't know who I am, <clears throat> my name's Keith Morgan. Uh, I'm an electronics technician from ABC News. I worked for ABC News for 30 years. 25 of those years were with Ted Koppel and Nightline, and Ted used to drop me off at my car after the show, and we used to talk about all kinds of stuff. Uh, he actually gave me the opportunity to do two shows. Uh, I have a BA in communications from Howard University in radio, TV, and film, and I started in 1974 at Howard University and finished my degree in '94 because I spent most of my time helping to build Channel 32, Howard University's TV station, and get them on the air. And in 80, I, uh, I did a summer relief position at WRC, uh, NBC's O&O in Washington, D.C. But then I was doing on-air audio operations, and I really wanted to be in maintenance repairing this stuff. But that's what I ended up doing at ABC. Anyway... <clears throat> Um, I've been uh, kind of working with this stuff when it comes to Mars for since 1988, and there's a whole bunch of things that led me down this path. Um, the first thing that even got me started with this was me uh, having a sighting in 1973 when I was in high school, and I had gotten bused to High Point High School in Beltsville, Maryland. High Point is called High Point for a good reason, because you're going to be on the second floor in Bellsville, Maryland, and see the Shrine of the Immaculate Conception in D.C. That's how high up it was. And I got busted in the middle of my junior year, and the marching band at Northwestern, we had just finished Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. I was sitting on top of the world because I did what I wanted to do. I said, this, I wanted to be in that parade. And then I get to High Point. And I got in the marching band. We were finishing marching band practice one fall. And I'm sitting on the stairs. And I see this light at the horizon is zipping. And I say to one of the band members waiting with me, and I remember his name to this day. His name was Adite Chewy Chewy And we called him Chewy. And that was before Star Wars ever came out. And... This thing is zipping. It makes a 90-degree turn straight up, 
goes up and makes a 45-degree angle back in the direction it was going, still climbing, in the original direction it was going, but then climbing at another 45-degree angle. And now I'm standing up going, what the heck am I looking at? Because this thing is making turns at full speed. And retention of vision, you could see the angles on it and everything. And that's what got my curiosity up. But I kind of mm, dismissed it and asked my father, told my father about it when he picked me up. And he said, well, when I was a pilot, I used to see spots in front of my eyes. And I'm going, well, wait a minute. The other guy saw him too. Well, he's got spots, the same spots in front of his eyes. Anyway, that's when I got my first taste of debunking from my own father. And then <clears throat> as I went further down the road, I had other encounters and sightings. But then the thing that pushed me over the edge to, to really look into this was when Nightline did a show and they had Stanton Friedman and Phil Class on, and they were talking about UFOs. And at that point in time, all the media always laughed at when they said UFOs. They always, little green men, blah, blah, blah. And Ted had asked Stanton a question about, uh, is there anything that you can tell me that would give me some substantial evidence to look at this with a, from a different light? Because uh, I know there can't be any hard evidence or anything, but is there anything you could tell me? And Stanton had told him about Betty and Barney Hill. And Stanton went off into Never Never Land talking about something, and I didn't understand why he didn't talk about Betty. So after the show, I went downstairs to the studio, and Ted met me in the hall, and I said, Ted, Stanton should have told you that Betty drew a star map that was uh, – it, it was weird looking, but they couldn't place some of the stars – but then decades later, they found the stars that fit her map perfectly. And based on what they were looking at, they said this was like looking at our solar system from Zeta Reticuli. And he said, well, why didn't Stanton say that? And I said, I have no idea. But as we're walking down the hall, Phil Class is coming out from the studio because Stanton was up on the third floor in the studio up there because he separate the guests so that they don't, you know, go with each other and in the same studio <clears throat> and Phil comes down the hall and I tell him about my high school sighting of the light making the turns. And he looks at me and goes, Oh, you saw a spaceship from Alpha Centauri. So then that's when I said, okay, I'm going to look into this and I'm going to investigate as hard as I can. I'm either going to prove him right or I'm going to prove him wrong. And as I started down that road, I came across Richard Hoagland's book, The Monuments of Mars, City on the Edge of Forever. I also got Light Years by Gary Kinder. It was about Edward Meyer and his uh, encounters with the Pleiadians and his photographs. And if you guys aren't familiar with him, uh, if, you are, if you are familiar with the X-Files and that poster that Mulder had that said, I want to believe – is based on one of the renditions of his photographs. They were that sharp. As a matter of fact, um, Senator John Glenn, astronaut John Glenn, one of my childhood heroes, was on Nightline one night. And I came in and I talked to him and I said, 
So what do you think of this whole thing about UFOs? And this is 19, October 1988. And he said, oh, um, I'm an agnostic when it comes to those kind of things. But he said, he, I have friends that uh, told me say they see things, saw things, and I can't just dismiss them. So I said, <clears throat> I said, okay, is there anything that you have about these that you understand about them? He said, well, these, most of these things are blurred, out of focus, photographs, balls of light. You can't make out what they are. And I said, well, have you seen the photographs by Edward Meyer? This Swedish farmer with one arm, he gets his film done at the local film store. He's got 35 millimeter stills, sharp as a tack, and he's got eight millimeter film footage showing these things in motion, doing some weird stuff. He said, no, I haven't. So it was a few days or a week later, I, he was on again, and I had my coffee table book with visitors from the Pleiades. So I decided to show him the pictures. And he's going through these things, and he's going, you know, if just one of these is real, this is fantastic. And he autographs the book. Anyway, later on, I find out Linda Moulton Howe is interviewing uh, Colonel Phil, uh, Philip Corso. And he wrote the, day, the, day, the book The Day After Roswell. And he tells his experience working at the Pentagon under General Trudeau and how he had to get he had to get the stuff that was in a file cabinet that had pieces and parts from the crash of the Roswell crash in 1947 when the saucer crashed. And it was his job to disseminate this technology into our society through government contractors. And he's telling Linda Moulton Howe that he had conveyed this story to Senator Glenn. And he told Glenn that they had taken one of these disks and he said, we call them wafers, but we now know they were large integrated circuits. And we took one of them and we hooked it up to an electric golf cart, no batteries, just hooked it up to the electric golf cart, put a drop of water on it. And now we're driving around in this electric golf cart with just this disc and a drop of water on it, no batteries. And he said that when he told this story to Senator Glenn, Glenn said to him, well, I'm an agnostic when it comes to that kind of stuff. And at that moment, I knew that he was telling the truth. And I actually got to meet uh, Corso's son at an ex-conference. Uh, Stephen Bassett used to put on these ex-conferences out in Gaithersburg, and I would go to his, his conferences. As a matter of fact, um, Stephen used to send out press releases about um, meetings he was going to have with the press at the National Press Club, and nobody sent any reporters, but I'd get the press release and I'd see it and I would go because I thought that was a great source of information, especially now that I'm researching this stuff. And I just thought, you know, ABC missed out on having a great source of information and could have been ahead of the curve on all of this stuff, but they didn't do it. They just dismissed it. Okay, back to... Mars. Anyway, um, after I had uh, shown Senator John Glenn the book and the pictures and everything, a Nightline did a show about Mars. Now, I didn't know they were doing a show about Mars, but I was talking to a Nightline writer 
Steve Steinberg, and we had this little bet going. I said, did you see this tabloid article? It says that we received radio signals in 1924, came from Mars. And he says, oh, I don't believe that. And he said, but I said, the article says this was reported in the Scientific America and New York Times. He says, I don't believe it. I said, if I go to the library and I find these articles, will you look at this with a more open mind? He said, oh, yeah. So I go to the library, and back then everything was stored on microfiche. So I had to look at these microscopic pictures of newspapers, and I started January 1924, and I went through all of the articles, and they were talking about how we're going to listen in for signals from Mars because they – it was at one of his closest points to the earth. And they figured because they thought they saw canals that there's probably somebody living there. So I'm reading the articles. Calvin Coolidge asked for radio silence and Calvin Coolidge was the president of the United States at the time that this took place. And at that time in 1924, there weren't very many radios, nowhere near what we got now. And <clears throat> So he asked for radio silence. Then they asked Charles Francis Jenkins, who I later discovered was one of the inventors of the first mechanical television. And the sync signals that we use in television, the vertical sync, horizontal sync, and the blanking pulses, we still use in television to this very day. They're now digital, but they're still there. And he used it to synchronize his mechanical television. And they had asked him if he would use his new radio photoscopic blah, 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 blah device to save these signals onto a six-inch wide film. And they kept saying, okay, nothing yet. We haven't heard anything. And as it got closer, Mars got closer. Finally, they said, oh, we're receiving these signals that are coming in the form of dots and dashes. Some were thinking it was Morse code. And I'm like, when did Morse get to Mars to teach the Martians Morse code? Didn't make any sense, right? But this is the thinking back then. We now would look at it as ones and zeros, but back then it was Morse code because they didn't see anything in digital. Anyway, um, the as I went through to August, August 28, 1924, there's an article, Charles Francis Jenkins saying, we don't think these signals have anything to do with Mars. Quite likely it's heterodyning or interference with radio signals. As for the image of a crudely drawn man's face, it appears at intervals of roughly every half hour. It's a freak, something we can't explain. So every half hour, what looked like a profile of a face kept showing up. It kept repeating itself every half hour. Of course, now today, I get these geniuses who say, you can't transmit an image of a face in the space. You've got to know the person's terminal height and width. And I'm going, that just tells me you don't know the first thing about television, okay? Because if I wanted to transmit a signal into space with a face or an image, I don't need to know the person's terminal width and height. If I choose to do, send a million pictures, and what we call high-definition television is 1024 by 768, 1024 uh, horizontal lines by... um, 768 vertical lines because old black and white and color TV used to be 512 lines. So the resolution was low, but now we've got this high definition stuff. 
So if I transmit a million pictures and each one having a position in this transmission, one by one, two by two, three by three, all the way up to a million by a million, the one that is a 1,024 by 1,024, and you're looking at it on your high-definition TV, at some point, the first pixel is going to start on the left and right across to the right, and it's going to write down the screen until you see the picture reveal itself. And then when it gets to 768 lines, it's going to scroll up until it completes the picture, and then after that, it's going to be garbage for some amount of time, and then it's going to drift back into place, and then it's going to do it again. And it's going to repeat at that interval again and again and again and again. So what they were getting was an intelligent signal because nature doesn't do things like that and make images that look like a face. So what happens when we get to Mars in 1976? What's staring up at us? A face? Oh, wait. It's just a trick of light and shadow. If there was a second photograph at a different angle, the face would disappear. Well, there was a photo, second photograph at a different sun angle, and the face didn't disappear. But NASA kept pushing this thing about, oh, it's just a trick of light and shadow. And these two guys, Vincent DiPietro and Greg Molinar, they looked at the first photo, and they ran an algorithm they had created at that time. It was called the Starburst. And it was able to take the details in the shadowed area of the eye socket of that face and pull the details out. And there was this perfect circle in that eye socket like a pupil. So now they're excited. They go looking for a second photograph. The first one they had was filed under head. So they go looking for a second one. But it was filed off in Never Neverland, but they found it. They ran that algorithm again, and guess what? They found that perfect circle in that eye socket again. What's the odds? So then they start looking at the rest of the area, and then they find a five-sided pyramid. That was unusual. So along comes Mr. Hoagland, who accepted the, the uh, trick of light and shadow that NASA was putting out. He saw Vincent DiPietro and Greg Molinar's presentation about what they had discovered, and that's when he did a 180-degree flip because when he saw the details of that five-sided pyramid and he looked at the rest of the area and started finding other objects that did not belong, okay, that's when he really jumped on it and started to look at it from a mathematical standpoint. And that's when he started finding too many mathematical coincidences. Anyway... <clears throat> Nightline, after, they did, after I brought these articles back and I showed them to the Nightline writer, he says, oh, wow, we can use these in Thursday's show. And I'm like, what's Thursday's show about? Oh, it's about Mars. This is its closest point to the Earth. So now I'm making copies of these articles for the producer and the directors and, and for Ted. And Ted used a lot of the stuff in the opening of the show. I also had the Monuments of Mars at this point in time, the first edition. And they took an image of the face out of it. They took the image of the five-sided pyramid along with the image that had the overlay or outline of the five-sided pyramid so you could see what it looked like. And it looks like the Chrysler symbol, Pentagon with the star in the middle. It's pointing directly north 
Okay. Odds again. Odds are going to be pointing north. Then <clears throat> Richard starts looking at this, and he starts writing about it the next edition of his book because I'm in his second edition on. He writes a little blurb about me in The Dark Mission as well. I'm in Graham Hancock's book, The Mars Mystery, on page 110 under verification, where he's talking about how I duplicated Earl Torrance's work on the DNM pyramid, the five-sided pyramid. And I wrote an algorithm that all it did was take the back angle and it ran algorithms on the different angles because Earl discovered that as you divided the angles within this thing by one another, they work out the known mathematical constants, the three decimal place accuracy. That's highly unusual. And it keeps repeating over and over again, the square root of two, square root of three, square root of five, E divided by pi, E divided by the square root of five. And the numbers keep repeating over and over and over again, no matter how you do the math within it to three decimal places. So my algorithm that I created when I went back to Howard in 93 and minored in computer science, it duplicated what Earl did and it spit out all these numbers showing how close it was to the actual uh, <clears throat> constants. And then, and then I changed the back angle by a degree and ran the numbers again. And they just went off in the never, never, never. They were nowhere near three decimal place accuracy to those constants anymore. In other words, nature would have been, had to have been too accurate to create something that perfect that would give you that kind of mathematical layout. It was just impossible. But again, it is dismissed. In 1988, December of 1988, after Nightline did the show, Ted actually interviewed uh, Thomas Paine, ex-administrator of NASA. And he asked him about, what about this face? They put the face up and he said, oh, we think that's a, a windblown anomaly, a trick of light and shadow. And then Ted said, what about this five-sided pyramid? And he said, oh, that's a windblown anomaly too. <laughs> and then at the end of the show, Ted gave Hogan's book credit for where the pictures came from. And I decided to write to Mr. Hoagland to tell him, hey, Nightline gave your book credit on the air for where the pictures came from. And I sent it through his publisher because I didn't know where he was. His publisher forwarded it to him. And then he calls me, tells me he's invited out to Goddard Space Flight Center to speak to the scientists and engineers about what they had discovered in relationship to the face and the other structures on Mars. But he said there was a rumor that uh, they were trying to pull the rug out from under it because they didn't want it to go on. So I said, let me tell the producer. So I go to World News, and there's a producer, Leo Meilinger, and I said, Leo, uh, this is what's going on. And he said, keep me informed. I said, okay. So now Hoagland's people sent out press releases announcing the briefing at Goddard. Then NASA calls Hoagland and says, don't worry, everything's fine. It's still on. It's still on. Richard had sent me a video of Dr. Mark Carlotto's 3D shape from shading of the face. Dr. Carlotto works for TASS. They do Landsat satellite spot imaging. 
So when you take a picture that high up, the curvature of the planet and the curvature of the lens distorts the geometry of the photo. So you have to run it through an algorithm to flatten it out and, and space everything properly based on the numbers that you get back. It's called orthorectification. Now, the picture that NASA kept putting out with the face on it, it had data dropouts. So you had all this salt and pepper noise, these black spots on it looked like uh, pepper. And it wasn't orthographically corrected. They just, this is what they handed out. They could have put a janitor in a closet with a Atari computer or something, and it could have had it done in a, a month or two, but they never did that. So here we have Dr. Carlotto. He took the, the numbers that he got from Rand Corporation, this guy named Mert Davies, and he plugged them into his algorithms to flatten out the Sidonia region and get everything spaced properly. He also ran another algorithm, which does pixel summing from pixels around the holes and fills in the hole. And this works perfectly. I mean, I, the, our graphic artists at ABC was, they were crazy with this technology because they could just swirl their little styluses over their tablets and erase text off of pictures and it never looked like the text was ever there. This is how powerful this technology was. Anyway, um, we're like four minutes out from the uh, break, but I'm going to continue till we hit the break. So now, with this kind of uh, technology, to be able to take that raw data photo that NASA had, orthographically corrected, so everything's spaced properly, and all of the spots are gone, it was there. The technology was there. So Dr. Carlotto, when I was at Goddard, he gave me one of the orthographically correct images, and it was a big picture, too. And the thing is, is that <clears throat> after Richard said that they told him that the, the meeting was still on, I told the producer, he got a camera crew assigned. And it was on a Monday. It was my day off. So I went out to Goddard. I'm sitting in a packed auditorium with scientists and engineers, people standing around the walls. And I'm wondering, you know, where's my camera crew? There's two non-professional cameras in there videotaping, but there's no other cameras, even though Richard and his people got confirmations that they were going to have reporters there from CBS, NBC, the Washington Times, Washington Post, it, Nobody showed up except all the NASA people showed up and crammed the auditorium packed. And I'm going, okay, maybe ABC thought it was too stupid to send a crew for. So I thought maybe I should, shouldn't even worry about this. But I get home, I turn the TV on, and Dan Rather says, today NASA held a briefing about Mars. And I'm going, wait a minute, there was no camera crews there. What am I looking at? turned out that NASA sent out a press release that very day announcing a briefing about Mars at the National Press Club. So everybody who was supposed to go out to Goddard turned around and went down to the National Press Club, including my camera crew. But I didn't get that word, so I'm out at Goddard wondering, where is my camera crew? And then I realized it was an egghead maneuver to get everybody away from Goddard because they didn't want anybody seeing what these guys knew. Why? 
Was it going to make them some kind of heroes or something and make NASA look bad? No. They know what they're looking at. They can't be that stupid. So when we come back from break, because we're about a minute out from break, I'm going to then tell you what I did to discover the Morgan curve on Mars, because I was really pissed that NASA would pull something like this. Because you know, when, when I was growing up, NASA was my hero. They were like, you know, these guys are out there. They're looking for the, the answers. They're looking for new life, new civilization, whatever Shatner said in Star Trek. But I'm looking for this. And I'm like, you know, these guys are putting their necks on the line. But, you know, you, you never know why things are done the way they're done. But it just, it just, it irritated me to know that our space agency would actually cover up something as bold as that. So you're listening to The Other Side of Midnight. My name's Keith B. Morgan. I am your guest host for tonight. I'm usually your engineer, but I'm doing both tonight. And we'll be right back after the break. Take a look at what is going on with us now. You have vax or no vax. You have mandates or no mandates. You have uh, pharmacies who are not allowed to make uh, pres- prescriptions on substances that they don't, you know, <laughs> that, that, that big pharma doesn't want them to have anymore. But somebody's in control of something. There's going to be a time, follow the money, where you're going to say, hey, Something really inappropriate's gone on here. We're being controlled. I mean, it's it's one thing to to have mandates and all these, and another thing to shut people up who say, "I would like to talk about this a little bit." No, you don't. You're not going to talk. And and so we have uh, you know people like uh, Dr. Mercola being shut down. That is not us. That's not how we operate. People ought to at least be allowed to have an opinion and state the opinion and and have uh, say uh, i'd like you to know that a good immune system is going to help you so here are the things for a good immune system but i'm sorry you can't buy them anymore because we're not allowed to so something's going on so that my friend is going to be exposed that's another thing that you're seeing for a while and it won't last forever so it's there now but believe me, it ain't going to stay because the light's going to be turned on, just like the, the abuse of the, uh, that I've just talked about, about women and kids for priests and all. It's here in an ugly way, and eventually it's going to be seen. Pride says there'll be revelations or maybe even a movie about it. It's going to be the same thing that happened when we found out with tobacco, that they were, of course, addicting our children, and they had a cartoon, and they knew that it caused cancer. And... You know what happened with that. We shut that, basically shut that down, and now we don't smoke anymore. Hi there, this is Lee Carroll. I want to tell you about the other side of the news. In these days where we're not really hearing much good news or perhaps even what's really happening, that's where the other side of the news is different. 
And in that, you're going to hear not only controversy, but you're going to hear great things. There can be joyful things, too. I just got done with one of the broadcasts, and I encourage you to take a listen with myself and Monica. But the other side of the news, that's what we need more of in these times. And welcome back to the other side of midnight. Um, Let's see, where did I leave off? Okay, so we got manipulated away from Goddard Space Flight Center. At least my camera crew did. And and I was so livid. I was, I was, I said, I know this was just these guys trying to keep us from knowing something. I didn't know what at the time. And since Dr. Mark Carlotto gave me that orthographically correct photo, I decided I was going to tell the president, vice president, and head of ABC News, the, the president of Cap Cities ABC and the vice president of Cap ABC, uh, Messrs. Burke Murphy, and the head of ABC News is Rune Arledge. And most of you, if you watched Monday Night Football back in the day, you'd hear at the end, directed by Rune Arledge, because he went from being director for sports and Monday Night Football to being head of ABC News. So I wrote a nice little letter, and I took that orthographically correct photograph that Dr. Carlotto gave me, and I stuck it in our Xerox machine, and I said, I'll make copies of this and send them copies and point out stuff in here for them. And when that copy came out, dumb me, I forgot to push the photo button. So this copy comes out black and white, not multiple gray, black and white. And I'm looking at this thing going, I can't use this. But then I notice that there's these little mounds that are shutting all this light out. And then there's the big structures like the face and the five-sided pyramid and another bigger pyramidal structure. And they're all jutting this light out. And if I played connect the dots from around the other pyramid where the smaller mounds were, I could make a perfect one-third to almost a half a circle. And I'm going, wow. That's interesting. And then I started to measure the distance between them as they start out from around this big pyramid. And they're doubling in their spacing. They're exponentially spaced. And I'm going, okay, am I reading something into this? The distance between the first and second doubles between the second and third. The distance between the second and third doubles between the third and the fourth. And the distance between the fourth and the fifth didn't quite match the doubling. And I'm going, why isn't this fit? Skip it, go to the sixth one, and it's perfectly double the distance between the third and the fourth. And I'm saying, okay, am I reading something into this now? And I'm just making stuff up. But then you draw a line from the sixth one through the fourth one, and you keep going along that same axis, same equal distance, and boom, you're dead center in another one. Connect those three, you got a ray across the curve. Basic high school geometry. I'm going... Oh, this is interesting. So now I've got something to work with. And I meet Earl Torn when Richard was doing a press conference at the National Press Club. Earl Torn was one of the people there with him. And I show Earl Torn this curve and the ray across the curve. And he spends the weekend looking at this. And then Richard calls me and says, hey, 
uh, you need to contact Earl. And I said, why? He said, you discovered something. So I called Earl, and he said, yeah, I found the logarithmic function of E. Not only is your curve there, but the X and Y axis to plot this curve is there. And I'm going, what the heck are you talking about? I wasn't thinking X and Y. And he told me what he did. I took my ruler out and went, and I was like, oh, wow. And that's when I fell off the chair, and I was like, there's no way in heck he could have manipulated anything to make this work. Because he said all he did was take the logarithmic function of E graph, lay it down over the area, and everything fell into place. And I'm going, I found the majority of the mounds. How could he make all of this stuff fit? He didn't, can't move these objects up there. We didn't take the pictures. Uh, I took my picture back out, and sure enough, it fit. So now... I'm looking at something that actually is 100% proof that the objects sitting on Mars are artificial. Somebody constructed them. Now I wanted to know who constructed them. Of course, NASA wasn't going to give us anything. And in the second edition of Richard's book, The Mayans of Mars, that's when he starts to talk about me. And he points out that, you know, um, he, all he says is, we're looking at the curve. He talks about all the other stuff I did, like helping set up Dunbar High School's Enterprise mission, and we had students role-playing as though they were on Starship Enterprise, and I actually set up a satellite dish to receive NASA Select off the satellite so they could actually listen into NASA as they were doing things. And the whole thing with the... Um, the whole thing with uh, the finding this, I knew at that moment it wasn't a joke. It wasn't something that somebody was trying to make up or anything like that. I actually talked to a guy one time, and I was in a 7-Eleven, and we were just shooting the breeze, and I mentioned the stuff about NASA and the, the Viking and stuff like that. And he said, yeah, he said he was on, he worked for NASA. And he said that they actually got something green to grow at both landing sites. After they scooped up the soil, they put it in a container. Then they hit it with some, I guess, uh, water that had been sterilized with no bacteria or anything in it. But they said they got something to green to grow. But then NASA dismissed those findings because they said, oh, it must be due to contamination. It, it must have been contamination. Stuff wasn't sterilized properly. And this guy was livid. He said, they lied. I know it was sterilized properly because I was the one that sterilized it. And he said, they lied about it, and they actually got something green to grow. Why would you lie about finding life on another planet in this solar system? That does not make sense. You should be jumping with joy. No, they don't want to tell you because if they tell you that they found life next door, look at all those other stars out there. If you found life on next door, what do you think is out there in all those trillions of stars that we can see? Okay? There's got to be life. And they keep telling us, oh, life has to live in 
Uh, you got to have the right atmosphere and the right temperature. And so we got bacteria living in nuclear reactors. They've got amoebas or whatever on, sticking on the glass of the space station out in the vacuum, and they're alive, okay? And they're saying, oh, that must have been, must have been pulled up into the atmosphere by high winds or whatever and somehow got up there on the space station. Come on, guys. Life wants to live anywhere it damn well pleases, and it doesn't have to abide by your rules. And then when they got way down in the ocean and there's volcanic vents going off and there's no sunlight, but there's plant-like worms down there. There's crabs under crushed death situations, and there's life. You cannot say life doesn't want to live any place it damn well pleases, okay? Because it does. Anyway, back to the Mars. So <clears throat> they didn't tell us that they found life on Mars. But then all of a sudden we come across, what did we come across? We came across a meteor, and it, they found it in the Arctic or weather, because that's normally where they find them, because they show up better in the, in the white when they hit the ice or whatever in the snow. And they look at it under a microscope, and they go, wow, look at these little microscopic fossils in here. This looks like life. They bring that out, and it immediately gets stomped on. Why? Because they can't find life anywhere else, or it's going to mess up the paradigm. So they got to keep sticking it under the ground and saying, nope, 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 that isn't, that isn't, can't be, nope, nope, doesn't fit, doesn't fit. Well, when people started pushing for NASA to take better pictures of the face, and I was one of them, I wrote a letter to Congressman Robert Rowe telling him what was going on. And I said, we need to get NASA to take more pictures of this face because we need to know what's going on. So NASA hemmed and hawed for the longest time, and then they decided to take this picture. But they rotated the craft off in there, supposed to look straight down. So now it's looking back at the face at an angle. And they cranked the pedestal level or the black level up so high that the contrast level went away. And this thing was so grayed out. And you could actually see the fingerprint of the CCD, the charge coupled device that was picking up the image. You see all these streaks, vertical lines, because it was lousy. Then the European Space Agency comes along. What do these guys do? Oh, they take a better picture of the face. Great, now we got a good picture. But what do these rocket scientists do? They put this thing out upside down and said, Oh, see, there's nothing there. So now NASA, not wanting to be left behind, decides they're going to play catch-up. So now they take a better picture of the face. Do these rocket scientists do? Knowing this thing is aligned north but offset to north by 19.5 degrees, they put it out upside down and said, oh, see, there's nothing there. You spin that sucker around 180 degrees, and you look at this thing. It's not a head-on. You're looking at the other half of the face is a profile. You're looking at a face from the side. And right there where the ear should be, there is an upside-down checkmark ridge, and it shouldn't be there. You've got the neck that comes down with a curvature for the collarbone. You've got the chin that comes down. You've got the eye on that side that comes over. 
hairline across the top, too many details. Okay. Anyway, point being, NASA didn't know about the curve, even though Hogan said we're looking at the curve. They had no idea. So these geniuses decide to take a high-res shot across that big pyramid that the curve starts out from around. Oh, wait a minute. What are these things running down the side of the pyramid towards each one of these mounds? There's these humps or ridges. They look like tunnels that are arched, and they come down, and they go across and connects to the first one, which is more circular. Another one comes down another section, goes out and across the plane, connects to the second mound, which is slightly more oval. And then a third one comes down and connects to the back of the third mound, which is clearly oval, which actually looks like the one that's at the end of the ray because they took a high-res shot across that. And I'm going, no way. Nature could not have done that. There's no way nature came across and said, oh, let's make these ridges connect these mounds at the end. And these things aren't like runoff of this thing when they're gullies taking dirt off the side of this big pyramid and piling them up at the bottom. No, they're too far away from this guy to even start to pile up there. They should have piled up a lot sooner and a lot closer and connected directly to the pyramid if that was the case. But no, these things are out across the plane and these little paths go out towards them. I knew at that point we are being lied to. And I just get I I just don't get it. So on my section in Radio with Pictures, if you go to the other side of midnight.com and then you click on tonight's show banner that says uh, Meanwhile, back on Mars, that will take you to the show page. If you scroll down a little bit and you look at the fast links and it says links to items and you click on Keith, my name, it will take you down to my stuff that I posted. And the first thing you see is me and Ted Koppel. And that's when I was younger, <laughs> much younger. And uh, just want to let you know that, yeah, I did work for ABC News. And then in the second part, if you look at the, the banner, you'll see the face on Mars. Well, this is the black and white versions of the face on Mars. And the first one you can see, this is when NASA took the better picture in 2001. And you look at this, the overlay that I put on it in the second picture, and you can see the ridge for the ear, the eye, the chin, the neck with the curvature for the collarbone and the hairline across the top. And I'm going, there's no way I could just sit here and trace this stuff out like that. I mean, it's, it's, you can't have that. See, there's more than one image in, involved in here, not just the head on and the profile, but in the upper left hand quadrant is the Im image of a lion's face. That's why the broad nose is on the left half or the right half and I'm looking at this and all you had to do is make a mirror image of it and boom you could see the face yeah you could see this was a, a face and 
Bass has constantly been dismissing this stuff. But now, wait a minute. The Navy came forward and told us that UAPs, UFOs, were real. We don't know what these things are. Come on, guys. You know what they are. You've known since 1947 or probably before that. But you've been telling the public one thing and playing this game. Oh, don't let them see what we're doing over here. We'll let them see this over there, and they'll think everything is hunky-dory. Well, they know that this thing is real. If I found that curve and those mounds, and they took that high-res shot across that big pyramid, you think these idiots don't know what they're looking at? They know. Now, there's a whole bunch of other details I can go into. I'm about 10 minutes out from going to the top of the hour break. But I'm going to give you a little bit of this because later I'm going to get into some of the stuff that ABC came across. And I kept wondering why this stuff never went national, always went local to an affiliate in some other city. Now, you guys think, when I tell people I work for ABC, they say, oh, you work for channel such and such. No, channel such and such gets programming from our network, your soap operas and all of that stuff, and your, your primetime shows at 8 o'clock on, they come from the network, which we provide the programming for. They're just a little TV station that broadcasts, rebroadcasts what we send them. So people don't understand how a network works. So they think when they do a press conference and the locals come, oh, we we got out there. We've we've let everybody know. No, only your little town knows or your little city knows, but you haven't made it to national coast to coast. That's when you have to hit stuff like World News Tonight, uh, NBC Nightly News, you know, the stuff that comes from the networks. They, that encompasses the entire country. But you can't keep people hidden or things hidden from people if you put it out there. And there's technologies that have been suppressed, and people say, oh, it's just conspiracy stuff. No, it's not conspiracy stuff. I watched all this stuff take place. But we're sticking with Mars for right now. So I'm about nine minutes out now. But if you go down to item number three, that image is the Morgan curve. And you can see the X and Y axis. And that Y axis went through that fifth mound. It didn't fit the exponential spacing because I kept going, why didn't this thing fit? Because it was part of the Y axis. It goes through two mounds in the city square. And the city square are four, four objects that are spaced, how did Rich say, orthogonally. They look like the number four in dice. So you go through two of those. You go through a big bump on the corner of the pyramid, the big pyramid that's right up against it. You go through that fifth mound, and you end up dead center on that five-sided pyramid. And I'm going, this, this is just crazy. This is, this is absolute proof that this is totally artificial. The x-axis, the, the, at the end of the x-axis, the pyramid up in the upper left-hand corner, are, that goes through two other mounds and then all the way over to the fort, to the tip. And that's that triangular set of walls 
that has a 45 degree angle in one of the, in one of the corners. <clears throat> so that is the Morgan curve. And if you click on the picture, it'll blow it up so you can see more details. I also have an animation and further down in my stuff, I have links to the, to my website and to my YouTube channel where you can actually look at the Goddard Space Flight Center uh, briefing that Richard held where my camera crew and the rest of the media didn't show up. And you can also see the uh, Lewis Research Center briefing that Richard gave where the director stood up, introduced Mr. Hoagland to all of the employees. This thing was so important, they had a number for all of the employees to sign off their, their time to attend this. They had posters up and they had it on closed circuit TV to other areas of the complex. And he says, he gives Mr. Hoagland's background, working with Walter Cronkite, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then he makes a statement about, and Mr. Hoagland's been successful in convincing the president to state a return to Mars is our main goal. And the president at the time was my mom's old boss, George H. Bush. My mom worked for Central Intelligence for 38 years. And I actually met him at ABC but he was vice president of the United States at that point in time under Reagan. And I said, yeah, my mom worked under you when you were director of central intelligence. And he said, oh, yeah, what's her name? Jean Morgan. Oh, yeah. Okay. And he autographs a card. He gave it to me. I gave it to my mother several years ago. I said, mom, where's that card I gave you from George Bush? Oh, I put it with the picture. What picture? And she pulls out a picture. And here he is giving her an award of central intelligence. So I said, I guess he did know her. That was to kind of clearance I had. I had White House clearance. I had Capitol Gallery pass clearance. I had D.C. Police pass clearance. So I had, you know, nice clearance. Thing is that George Bush said something to me when we were talking. He made some comment. It's like he was trying to get something off his chest. He said, if the American people knew what I had done, uh, not what he had done, excuse me, what we had done, they would run us out of town on a rail, tarred and feathered. And I wasn't going to jeopardize my security clearance to say, what the hell are you talking about? But it was something is like he had to get off his chest. I don't know what it was. And we may never find out, but it was something that the American people would not have put up with. That's all I know. Anyway. Um, back to my images, um, the fourth image, these are the first three mounds of the curve. And this is the high-res shot that NASA took across the big pyramid, which is over on the right. And you can see the three mounds, they've got the white circles around them. The green, the green circles are around the four mounds in the city square. And one of them, the one to the lower right of the four has got a triangular set of walls on it, just like the fort, which is much, much bigger. And I'm going, that's too coincidental. It even has a 45 degree angle on it, just like the fort, but it's smaller. And if you look very carefully, you'll see the ridges running down the side 
of this big pyramidal structure going out across the flat plain and connecting to these guys. And the third one comes down, and he connects mound at the end, the third mound, and you can see there's like an impact crater that took place right against that. Well, now this is all, you know, right there in front of us. But NASA keeps saying, it's natural, it's natural, it's natural. No, it's not. There's stuff sitting in Utah that just, I, I have a link at the end of my items that will, you can look at a PDF, two PDFs. One is the Morgan curve, and I go through all the stuff in that. Also cover the Badlands Guardian, which most of you guys don't even know about. And I also have one to my Utah experience where there's all this stuff there that just is artwork and nobody sees it. And they're going, oh, no, that's just a natural formation. Is it? No. Again, stuff sitting right under our nose. The Badlands Guardian. I introduced that to the ancient aliens, the History Channel's ancient aliens in 2018 at the Alien Con. It was so impactful on um, uh, Eric Von Danigan, Chariot of the Gods author. He goes, there is this, there is this. Because they didn't know anything about it. I'm sitting there getting bored to death listening to them talking 1980s rhetoric. And I'm going, come on, guys, where's your current stuff? They didn't know about the Morgan curve either. And then when I confronted Travis Taylor and uh, David Childress Hatteras and David Barr, and I said, you guys don't get it. We are not alone. We have never been alone, and we never will be alone in this universe. Next thing I know, executive producer Kevin Burns is yelling across the lobby when I'm walking through the lobby going, hey, 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 we're definitely going to contact you. We are definitely going to contact you. Didn't contact me. They contacted Hoagland, but they never contacted me. And then Kevin passed away from a a heart attack in uh, 2020, I think it was, or yeah, or just before 2020. I think it was 2019. And um, so he never got in contact with me. But it would have been nice. I could. But I know enough people on their ancient alien staff to push things forward. And we're coming up on the break here. And I'm going to pick that back up. And we're going to go back to Mars again. And I'm going to continue with what I discovered. Okay. So you're listening to the other side of midnight. My name's Keith Morgan. And I hope I'm not boring you guys. Because if I can get to it. I'm going to tell you guys about technologies that are coming out that if you invest in, you will make a million bucks. Like I pushed my portfolio to by investing in things I want to tell. All right. You're listening to the other side of midnight.
insideofmidnight.com. Join Richard C. Hoagland and an array of fascinating guests as we explore real-world topics and events through the lens of hyperdimensional physics. Join Club 19.5 to gain access to hundreds of archived shows. Only $9.95 per month. Listen in each Saturday and Sunday to the most compelling and thoughtful broadcasts heard in over 160 countries around the world. Real research. Real data. Real science. The other side of midnight.com. The other side of midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back to the other side of midnight. So I'm going to pick up where I left off, but I wanted uh, Richard wanted me to make a point. He he was he had something he wanted to get across. He he asked me, so how many pictures have we taken of uh, the surface of Mars by uh, since Viking? And I said about probably six hundred thousand or more. And he said, yeah, it's about right. He said, well, how many pictures are coming out of Ukraine? And I said, I'm not sure. Maybe 100,000, maybe, I don't know. And he said, well, how many pictures have we actually seen of Mars versus all the stuff that's coming out of the Ukraine? We got plenty of stuff in the Ukraine, but there's hardly anything coming out from about Mars because most of the stuff coming from Mars has got too much detail in it too much stuff that they can't figure out how to explain. So they either paint it out, brush, airbrush it out. Back in the, the day when I was working with Elaine Douglas and Operation Right to Know, we were doing a radio broadcast on WOL radio in Washington, D.C. And one of the callers, uh, I forgot her name. Gosh, I'm on the tip of my tongue. Well, she was telling a story about how um, she had talked to someone that worked at NASA or she, they were showed her a photograph that actually showed a saucer casting a shadow on the ground, hovering in the sky. And he, he said, what do you make of this? And she said, oh, is that a blemish on the picture? He said, blemishes don't uh, cast shadows. And she said, is that a UFO? And he said, what are you going to do with that? 
Oh, this is the kind of stuff we airbrush out before we present it to the public. Yeah, that's the kind of stuff that goes on, but people don't believe that kind of stuff, okay? So we're going to go back to Mars because there's a lot of stuff I could talk about. That's why eight hours is would even not enough for me to tell you everything that I've been through and experienced in, in my research and things like that. I kind of still regret not being able to do the James uh, Goodall uh, memorial to uh, John Lear. But hopefully when jo- uh, James comes back, uh, we'll be able to pick that back up. And because uh, we had a great conversation just between me and him about Bob Lazar and 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 John Lear. And for those who don't know who John Lear is, his father was the creator of the Learjet, you know, that executive plane, jet plane that's slick and, you know, carries those high paying passengers. ABC actually paid money to hire a Learjet to fly a couple cans of paint from New York down to Washington so we could paint a set in a nightline set. Don't ask who or why, but they spent that kind of money for currying a couple cans of paint. Anyway, uh, John was a, he was one of the UFO investigator heroes that, uh, you know, one of the people behind the scenes that unsung hero that most people you mentioned his name, it's like, who? They don't know. Just like people don't know the Morgan curve. But um, hopefully that'll change. <laughs> you guys will spread the word. But the technology um, is one of the things that's going to really come blasting out right now. And all the things that they were suppressing are going to come to a head. But I'm not going to get into that. I can probably get in that and the last hour um, or maybe a little bit before, but right now is we're back to Mars. So back on Mars, if you go down to the fifth image of mine, it's actually a composite of um, all of the different stills that I took from my animation because I actually made the original animation a ABC graphics artist in 1994. And I had him take that ray across the curve, duplicate it, and swing it over to the first, uh, actually to the third mound, from the fourth mound over to the third mound. And I said, read that angle out to me. And he said, oh, it's uh, 19.5 degrees. I said, you're kidding me. No, it's 19.5 degrees. What is, what's, I said, that can't be right. He said it's 19.5 degrees. I was like, oh, and you guys are, who are members of the 19.5 club, you know what 19.5 is, okay? And I said, okay, swing it over uh, another half a degree, and it's now 20 degrees. But because this is an oval or it looks like those lips that are out in the desert um, here on the earth. It was still falling on this mound. And then if you go out to the end of it, it cut through two others right at that 20 degrees. And I'm going, holy, dead center through the third mound. It's 19.5 degrees. Do I need to repeat that again? 
swing it over 20 to 20 degrees, where it's a half a degree, a little over, and it goes through two mounds at the very end. And I'm going, oh, my goodness. Okay. Coincidence? Nah, let it go. So he said, okay, it's at 20 degrees. Okay, swing it over to the uh, second mound. What's that angle? Oh, okay, that's 30 degrees. Okay, that's a difference of 10. Swing it over to the fifth, uh, the first mound. What is that angle? Oh, that's 35. So you got a difference of 5, 10, 20 degrees. And then I said, go from the fourth mound to the third mound to the sixth mound. What's that angle? Oh, that's 40 degrees. Uh, so it's doubling in its spacing, okay? You're using angles to show that these things are spaced exponentially. So uh, that animation, I had him drop the circles on the mounds, um, and then at the end put a little grid over it to show how it's spaced out, how the grid came in with the X and Y axis. Anyway, <clears throat> then later on, I got familiar with PowerPoint and I created a PowerPoint animation, added some more bells and whistles and some things that we didn't do in the original. And uh, I'm convinced that, that there's no way that these things could have been spaced like that. Then when the European Space Agency took a better picture of the Sidonia area, not just the face, but the whole Sidonia area, and they put it out and it's orthographically corrected, I took my graph that I created in PowerPoint. I grouped all of the circles and the lines together is one big thing. And I dropped it down over top of the European Space Agency's image, resized it a little bit, and everything fell into place. And I'm going, well, that proves those things are still there and it's not a joke. And then the thymus image from the was the Mars Odyssey. Yeah. And I did the same thing, dropped it down over it, sized it, and boom, everything was fitting again perfectly. And I'm going, this is not a joke. These aren't, you know, just some artifacts that just happen to be sitting here. Somebody was trying to tell us something important about the logarithmic function of E. And it was significant enough for them to build structures that big because those little mounds that I'm looking at in this picture, they're the size of the Great Pyramid in Egypt. They're not little things. Somebody built this stuff. So that's when I started doing my research on trying to find out who could have built this stuff. Anyway, I'm going to tell you about that as we get further down the road. Okay, so if you go to my sixth image... It says exponential spacing of main structures. Now, remember I said that these mounds were spaced exponentially coming out from around the big pyramid. But Dan Drazen in Richard Hoagland's book had pointed out the fact that if you go from the center of the city square out to the edge of the fort, that space then doubles to get from the edge of the fort out to the teardrop on the face. And then from the teardrop on the face, it doubles to get all the way out to the cliff. And the cliff, if you look at the pictures in number five, there's, this is actually two screens because I had two monitors until one of them died on me. And I could line up everything across both monitors and do a screen grab of both monitors simultaneously. And so the first group of six 
the first row and the second row. Those are each one of the stills from the animation showing the uh, mounds, the curve, and the ray. And then uh, I think it's the sixth one is where we actually make the uh, the angles, and then we start showing the angles for the last ones. And the one that thing that really tripped me out is after he put it on the first mound, and he said that was a difference of five degrees, I said, swing that sucker 45 degrees. I just want to see what happens. When he did that, I was on the floor. I was like, I can't believe this. And he says, what, 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 what? And I said, you don't see that? He says, I'm just an artist, Keithy. And I'm like, oh, gosh. And I had to point it out to him that going up the ray, the duplicate that we had, that was now at 45 degrees to the original ray, at the same distance as the fourth mound on the original ray, there was another mound. And it had this ridge that went around and connected to the big pyramid that the curve starts out in the first place. So now if you connected the fourth one and that one, you had this perfect isosceles triangle. And I'm going, how do you get a perfect isosceles triangle, okay? And then if you go to the end of that ray, because now it's exactly the same length as the original, it fell dead center in the middle of another one. And you connect those, you boom. You connect that you got another bigger isosceles triangle. How do you do that? Nature does not do that. One thing, I don't know if you guys saw Hidden Figures, but the lady who was the brilliant in the math, she said, math is dependable. Math is, from my standpoint, is an uh, absolute. There's very few absolutes in this world, okay? One, the very number one absolute that most people having a clue about is change. Everything changes. And then I get my nephew saying, oh, well, left and right don't change and up and down don't change. Yeah, go into space. There is no up or down. You get on a ship. It's no longer left and right. It's port and starboard. Come on. Yes, things change. Things change. And we get pulled along with it as these things change. And you got to keep up or you're going to get left behind. That is the number one absolute that nobody can dispute. And if they're stupid enough to try to dispute it, you need to walk away from them because they ain't got a lick of sense. Excuse me. Anyway, so what's the second absolute in this world? Carl Sagan said, mathematics is a universal language. And I'm here to say, no, he's not quite right. It's not mathematics. Mathematics was created by man to quantify the number one or number two absolute in this world. And you know what that is? Quantity. There's a quantity of everything. Even absence of quantity is quantity. I can go to any country and start holding up fingers one at a time, and they know I'm counting up. Or in some countries, I'm counting down. And if I put the fingers down, they know I'm counting down or I'm counting up, depending on what country you're in. That is the universal language. Every living thing understands quantity. Now, how does the mother duck know that she's missing a duckling? She doesn't say, oh, I have five ducklings. I only see four. She knows one from instinct that one's missing because the quantity isn't right. 
trees make more leaves, more quantity, make more chlorophyll, make more energy transfers. Every living thing recognizes it. A rat facing off a cat, he's going to fight the cat. If there's two cats there, he doesn't say, well, I see two cats. I got to get out of here. He says, well, I know there's more than me. I'm out of here. And he's gone because he recognizes quantity. They even did a study where they said that crows can only count to eight. They did some kind of blind where they had people going into a, a, a tent or something, and the crows sat there and watched the people come out. But they, when the eighth person came out, then the crows said, oh, we can go in and get the food. And they couldn't get it. They'd go in and didn't realize there were more than eight people in there. So the crows can only count to eight. A wild experiment. Anyway, back to what I was talking about. So um, the exponential spacing that Dan Drazen pointed out in Richard Hogan's book, The Mind to Mars, that's what gave me the incentive to look at those mounds and their spacing. And that's how I found that exponential spacing. It's not rocket science, okay? It's just common sense. So now, 7A, 7B, and 7C. These are composites of the face. Now, what you're seeing on the first one is you're seeing the, the, uh, the face lit up on both sides, the one that was taken in 2001 by NASA, the better one. And then next to it on the right side, it's an abstract drawing done by one of my ABC colleagues, uh, Cynthia Williams. And she did this in art class in 19, oh, it's, uh, 1979, three years after the Viking pictures came through. Has nothing to do with Viking. She was in an art class. She drew a profile of a man's face, okay, as part of her art project. It had nothing to do with the face on Mars. But when I saw it, I said, this is what we're looking at. You're looking at a profile of a face. Now, she doesn't have the ear there, or if it's in there, it's in the, it's in the shadows. But we're looking at a profile on that left side. In the 7B, you can see my outline. Most people look at it, the, the one without the outline, and goes, I don't see it. Put the outline over it. You go back, you look at it again, and wow. People go, oh, now I see it. Once you see it, you will never not see it. And you'll know when it's upside down or flipped in reverse, but you will notice it. Then there's... There's the three images down below. Two of them are once a high contrast and a low contrast of the face. And uh, Cindy's uh, drawing. Then in 8A, this is the Badlands Guardian. This is what I showed ancient aliens. And then season 14, my little saying about we are not alone, we've never been alone, and they use it in their opening. But they left out the part about we will never be alone in this universe. But then episode two, where Travis Taylor had said, oh, you can curve anything, 
talking about the Morgan curve when I introduced it to him. And David Childress Hatcheris said, oh, uh, I think that's a natural formation, talking about the Badlands Guardian. These guys did a 180-degree turn in episode two of season 14, which was on the Badlands Guardian. And David Childress Hatcheris, I think that's an artificial construction. And da, 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 da. They had Dr. Mark Carlotta on, who did a 3D shape from shading or 3D rendition of this. It's not con vexed guys it's concaved it's dug into the ground okay and he made a 3d rendition of it so you could rotate it and he says it looks like this when you're looking straight down on it if you're looking at it from any other angle it doesn't look like this does that mean it's natural no somebody created this and I'm showing my friend in 8B, the red lines going down the shoulder. He's wearing a vest. The one closest to his neck curves perfectly under his neck. There's no serration. There's no broken line. It just perfectly curves up under his neck. If you zoom in on his neck, you'll see two parallel lines. And in between those two parallel lines, there's this pattern. He's wearing a neckband. I'm showing my friend that, showing him the lips. He doesn't have a slit for a mouth. He's got lips. He's got a nose. And my friend says to me, I'm just surprised it got an eyelid. Too many details, guys, okay, for this to be a natural formation. And then if you go from the eye, 1.38 miles northwest, you come to another object just like this. This thing is not an object. This is huge. This is 2,200 feet from the top to the bottom. This thing is perfectly aligned north. It's pointing north, okay? The, the guard, Badlands Guardian Companion, which is 1.38 miles to the northwest, is pointing perfectly north. And it looks like a Viking with some kind of helmet on and the profile of that. And I'm going... How do you get two objects like this in the same general region? It's impossible, okay? This is not natural. They've known about this since 1937, guys, 1937. When I brought it up to Ancient Aliens and they did that episode uh, two in season 14, shortly thereafter, I'm trying to show my wife the Badlands Guardian and I'm seeing something about new Badlands Guardian area. When you search Badlands Guardian, you click on it, you go to some place where there's a mosaic of, you know, uh, satellite photos, and it's garbage. And I'm like, what is this? And then I go to the other link, and sure enough, there I am at the Badlands Guardian. And I said, well, why is this sitting here talking about new Badlands Guardian, new area? And then the next time I came and checked it out, maybe a month or so later, the, the link that goes to the spot where this image is at wasn't there. Only the one going to that lousy layout. And then I get there, and people that put comments in, there was like five people that put comments in. One said, oh, uh, there's nothing here. This is garbage. This is, this is, a, this is a waste of time. And, it, and I'm like, this isn't the right spot. So I immediately told Google Earth, I said, this is deceptive and misleading 
based on what their complaints selection gives you. And I thought it was going to take like maybe a week, maybe two weeks before they could say, oh, let's move this back over here. I even put in a an image with the longitude and latitude burned into the image as part of my protest or notification to them that, hey, somebody moved this over here, locked it out, and people are going to that spot thinking there's supposed to be something there. And they immediately moved it back in, in like a less than a day. And I'm like, whoa. So why are you trying to cover something up? Was this just some hacker doing that? No, I don't think so. <laughs> what meaning does that have to some hacker? I think the Anunnaki is still here. And maybe they don't want us to know they're still here, so they're starting to do things. Because what's happening with Mars, that face on Mars, 95% of you listening to this show right now have heard this guy's name. You heard it, read it, said it in your lifetime. You have no idea this is who you're talking about, but that's who's buried on Mars in that face. And we were told this in tablets that are six to 7,000 years old by an alleged Anunnaki god, and he's dictating this to a human scribe that's writing it into tablets. The history of this planet is not what we have been told. It is something completely, not completely different. It's just variations. All these religions and so forth on this planet They've all been arguing, fussing, and fighting about the same story. They just don't know it because they don't have a clarity on it. Our ancestors saw these guys with their technology and thought they were gods. When we had airstrips in World War II on an island with indigenous population there, a tribal culture, there's film footage of these guys down on their knees, all in white, bowing to the plane as it's flying overhead. And as the camera's widening out on the shot, there's a full-size stick-and-straw replica of the Dern airplane behind them that they built. They saw these guys as gods because they didn't have an understanding of the technology. We have grown up, I hope, to the point where we understand the technology. We understand what's going on. But there's those out there who don't want this out. Why? I don't know exactly other than control. And it, it, it irritates the heck out of me knowing that the technologies and everything that we have accumulated at this point in time, I don't think it's ours. We jumped over the vacuum tube era, and we went straight into to, uh, semiconductors, transistors and it didn't make any sense we were supposed to stay in vacuum tube a little bit longer until we really got a handle on this and this the transistor was so new that the people at the patent office said this thing will never work without a heated cathode because they had to only could see it from the standpoint of a vacuum tube having a filament to heat up the cathode to release the electrons to make it function the way it's supposed to but they couldn't see it. 
and Bell Labs came up with this. Anyway, uh, I'm going to get into technology probably when we come back from break because we're like one minute out from being in the break. Um, There's a lot going on. There's a lot going on in my head. I am trying my best to – I'm trying my best to try to get the word out or at least dump everything out of my head in some kind of recording because I'm looking at this show as – how did they say it in Galaxy Quest? The the archival records or something? This message is going out to somebody in the future. Hopefully they'll listen to it and they'll put the pieces together because these guys know that the next generation coming up, they are forced to try to rediscover what we already know. So with that, I am going into break and you guys are on the other side of midnight. Midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and nonlinearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 cents a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. The other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Holdwin and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Search the archives. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Membership costs $9.95 a month. 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back to The Other Side of Midnight. I am your host, Keith Morgan. And I hope I'm not boring you guys. Um, There is a lot, like I said, that uh, 
we got to talk about tonight. And I'm trying to dump as much stuff out of my head that I can give you guys some insight into um, things that you don't know about, never heard about, and you should know about because we're in a new industrial revolution, industrial technology revolution. Uh, when I worked at ABC, we were working on state-of-the-art video and audio equipment, and these guys were laughing at me going, why are you wasting your time with that computer? And I wanted to say, ask me that question in three years, but I just let it roll off. And then when we went to nonlinear video editing, oh, now they got to play catch up. Based on me to get my AVID certification, I passed and they sent other guys. They figured, oh, yeah, we can do it. Nope, they failed, failed. And I was like, you should have been playing with the Atari. I wasn't wasting my time. They thought digital television, you know, analog TV was going to be around forever and never thought about digital television coming out of the woodwork. But when I wrote that program that created a color bar program and how accurate the colors fell into the vector scope and waveform monitor levels were all correct, and I was like, well, I know where this is going. Anyway, back to what I'm talking about here. Um, so we seem to have a thing where each generation that comes in, they have to play catch up. If they don't pick up where the previous researchers were, they have to virtually start from scratch. So they have to do their own research and, and find out what's going on and play catch up. But then that's when these guys can come along and throw in disinformation and confuse everybody. And I, I came across a young guy on the web, and he's talking about Bob Lazar. Is he's a phony? He didn't go to this university. He didn't work for Los Alamos, and blah 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 blah. And I'm going, where are you getting this information from? Oh, the guy on such and such you know, does a webcast. And I went. He said, here, go here, and I watched this. And this young kid looked like he was probably he looked like he was probably younger than the guy that was texting me. And I'm going, and he's saying that he's looking at area uh, S4 at Papoose Lake, and they don't see any evidence of any kind of hangers in the in the side of the mountains and this that and the other. I'm going, well, geez, <laughs> you, if if some amateur like you can look at the pictures and find something like that, you think the Russians wouldn't find it first? Come on, and you're spouting all of this stuff, but his his peer, because they're same age they're about, is saying he knows what's going on. He has no clue. He's never talked to the people. He doesn't put the pieces together. Uh, and you have to do your legwork first. You can't just come up and say, well, I don't believe this. That's the problem with us. We live in a belief-oriented society. And you can't put the belief before the facts. Because when you do... You'll never see what's in front of you. That's why Utah's got all the stuff sitting out there, and nobody sees it. When that monolith showed up, it's sitting in the middle of an art gallery. And I'm going, nobody sees the, 
the head of the puma sticking out the side of the wall over there. Nobody sees the owl sitting up on the shelf over there. Nobody sees the artwork painted on the wall over there. And I'm going, what is wrong with these people? Somebody put that, we're calling the monolith there. And it sat there since like 2015 to 2019 or something. And nobody bothered it. But then when they find out about it, people start flocking in. And and then somebody comes along and decides they're going to upstage it and tear it down. Why? Because somebody doesn't want us to know. And Ron's calling me when he should be calling in on Block Talk. Ron, you going to call me on Block Talk, please? Thank you. And... Oh, I'm, I, I've got so much to tell you guys. Uh, the stuff that I watched coming through ABC. Um, I'm, if you're still looking at my stuff, I'm going to get into the technology stuff because that's what pissed me off the most working at ABC. I'm standing in a control room watching spots come through, going to affiliates in different cities, and I'm going – we're in the middle of an energy crisis. Why isn't this a national story? And the first one that caught my attention is number eight, uh, excuse me, 9A, 9A, 9B, and 9C. 9A is a still from the video that I was looking at before it ever aired in Ohio. I'm standing here, we're relaying this to Ohio through our ABC Bureau in Washington. And this guy named Stan Myers has come up with a way to to convert water to hydrogen using very little current, and he's driving around in a dune buggy with a tank full of water. And I'm going to hold there for a second. Hello, Ron. Are you there? Hi. Uh, yes, I am. I'm sorry. I had trouble finding a, finding a spot where my phone would work. Okay. You're on the air right now, so... Yeah. Uh, okay. I'm telling everybody about the uh, Stan Myers right I, now. But if you okay. like to talk well, about your, well, you can't see it because you don't have a internet connection about your pictures. No, I, I can. No, I can. I can look at the. I can look at the pictures simultaneously. Oh, okay. The phone. The phone's okay. It's just the phone service that isn't. So I'm yeah. sitting on. A, I'm sitting on a little hillock on top of a, um, an old, um, uh, backpack so that I don't get ants in my pants. And, um, yeah, I got a good signal right now. Yes, I would like to if anybody wants to go to my images. I'm sorry I haven't been in earlier. I just couldn't um, couldn't find a spot with reception. Welcome to the 21st century. Uh, I said uh, that yeah. at the uh, 2018 Baltimore Alien Con when I was the first at the mic in the opening. And I said, yes. welcome to the 21st century. And Kevin Burns said, uh, how long have you been standing out here? And that's when I should have said long enough to know we are not alone. We haven't been alone. But I did that at the other conference uh, with Travis Taylor and David Childress Hasseris. Because if I had done it at that point in the opening of the, uh, of the conference, um, it would have probably got a standing ovation or something. Maybe I'm pushing it. Anyway, yeah. so we're okay. going to go to the where We've, we should have everybody pretty much looking at um, 
should be looking at the um, the item show items under Radio Wood Pictures because they were looking at my stuff. I I'm going to tell them how to get there again because we may have some stragglers that are coming in. But um, yes. go to the other side of midnight.com and you click on the banner that says uh, uh, <laughs> looking back at Mars, going back to Mars. Um, and then uh, when you get there, as you scroll down, you see the fast links. You can click on Ron's link and that'll take you to Ron's stuff. And uh, Ron will take it from there. Ron, are you looking at it on your phone? Yes, I am. Okay. And I already I already noticed something that I like I said I've been having reception problems which people out there don't have to um um participate in but yeah I couldn't even couldn't even check earlier after I got home. However, uh you left one off Keith. What happened to the what happened to the one with the blue rocks on it? That's number 7. And number seven. No, there six. was one that was a cut. There was only one that was a that was a pair of images tied together, with a raw image on the bottom and the uh, cleaned up image on the top. Okay, I don't. I, I can talk around it. it. It's just a shame that people didn't see it. Yeah, but it's uh, wow. anyway. We'll just go through them. Number one okay. of mine, if anybody's there, uh, it looks like the floor drain in a very de- dirty gas station bathroom. Uh, well, it's about the same size as that, and NASA would love to have you think that it's uh, something that their drill did. But there was this fascinating little interlude back in the days of the um, Opportunity rover that because um, they took nice color pictures, but they were all triplets, you know, so you had, to, you had the red, blue, and the green, and that's why they look sharper and cleaner than the newer ones because they were real photographs as opposed to those um, TV pictures that all the new million-dollar cameras scan out. Anyway, it's, uh, this is yet another picture. I've, t- I've toyed with, the, uh, with another picture of one of these, but it's not, this is a different one in the same area, completely different <laughs> thing. And, uh, it's, um, and the, color, the color is better, actually, but there's lots of them. They took a lot of them. They just didn't tell anybody. And um, you can you can see it has it. Well, I'd have to have the other one for comparison. But any, several people had asked uh, after shows because we never got to that item. So I'm glad you put it first. Uh, it became it became kind of a joke in my mind. I said, okay, well I'll just keep posting that, and eventually, you know, we'll get a chance to talk about it. Well, this is another one. This is so this is clearly not something that we did. <laughs> this was there already, and this one's on the ground, unlike the other one. And that white stuff in the middle indicates it's not a hole. You know, it's it's filled up with like grainy crystalline stuff, either um, corrosion or something. I don't know. You can blow it up quite a bit and see it. There's not much else to say except that yeah, there's something that wasn't a rock formation. Uh, this uh, number two is a little pile of rocks that is very much like the things that. Um, um, Maria Wheatley has talked about uh, before, and uh, there's a bunch of those too. And I, I didn't realize until I heard one of her shows exactly what those what those are. They're mostly grave markers. That was what they did. They put a little pile of rocks there. Makes sense. I mean, everybody's familiar with cairns and nicely arranged uh, stacks 
of stones. You see those in the yeah, I'm looking at the, I'm looking at that main stone that's got the, the point sticking out towards us, sort of, and it looks like huh? there's a V-shaped channel cut in this sucker. That nature doesn't do oh, stuff no. like that. No, no. And, uh, yeah, there probably is. I, this one fascinated me because theoretically that's the right color. I mean, you know, sometimes you get odd colors because uh, NASA does strange color corrections or uses weird filters. And according to all the data, it's just a straightforward picture. So I said, oh, there's a pink and purple one. How interesting. And, uh, yeah, Maria's seen it, and uh, she seemed to think it was something like that. Didn't have much to say. But I just go through them quickly, and then people can look at them when they want to. Number three, you might want to blow it up a lot because it looks like a bent-over nail hammered into a two-by-four on the lower left there. It's uh, clearly not something ordinary, and that it really does look more like petrified wood, but petrified used wood, you know, not just like a petrified tree. I mean, I'm assuming it's stone at this point, but um, you blow that up, and it looks like an old-fashioned nail. Um, now, number uh, the closest we're going to get to the one that I was most proud of was, uh, I guess, the next one, which is, um, let's see. I'm doing a little shrink and zoom thing on the phone because it crowds them out. Uh, number four is mm-hmm. a picture of Gale City, which is in um, uh, Gale, Cra- uh, Gale Crater, of course. And um, JPL published a big panorama of that area. The pictures were taken around Sol 1100 for curiosity Uh, and you know it's well what does it look like blow it up there's this there's a city there which looks an awful lot like especially the prominent part in the middle looks an awful lot like uh, Chichen Itza so it's uh, but it's you know unlike the megalithic ruins that we see mostly on Mars it's uh, very much a um, uh, very much a city so people can, I don't know, do, you, if, do these get bigger if you click on them, Keith? Yeah, you click on it, it, it will open up. It's supposed to be okay, so you can, a separate page, but for some yeah. reason, no, it's not. I could have sworn yeah. I said all the open up in a it's, separate page. But you can always web back and go back. Um, yeah, yeah. People, But the blue sky is courtesy of NASA. That was the first uh, big official picture that they published you can go look for it it's uh, the um, image number is on there somewhere it's one of those ones that came from the nasa uh, jpl photo journal um so it's easy to find but it's you know it hasn't got the string of numbers uh, designation that the stuff that comes directly from the rovers does and uh, this this is enhanced quite a bit from what they did but it's uh, it's not as sharp as the one that's missing because that was from an original frame. Uh, I used their panorama because it was fine, but it's a little less sharp than that. Um, the next one is that very colorful thing, and that's just a cl- that's from Perseverance. It's just a close-up of the ground near the rover, and you can see that that's colored glass lying on the ground, pretty obviously. And um, the um, just for reasons of um uh let me see okay i got it ah it's these are harder to do on the phone <laughs> uh, yeah, because you have to make them bigger okay and the uh 
Yeah. Next one is a very recent one from Perseverance. It's where they're headed now. Um, and if you look in the distance, uh, you'll see a bunch of ruins. And that was kind of a, one of the intended themes for the show, that the um, why don't they do what you would expect anyone with any sense to do when they've got stuff to look at? Why don't they go look at it? Why do they avoid it? Uh, I talked to Richard uh, earlier today, and um, he said that's, you know, that's the big question. I mean, we've been... Um, and other countries have been sending probes to Mars since the mid-60s, you know, going all the way back to Mariner. And why haven't they learned anything? If you look at the latest releases about the new new analysis of geological something or other, where they talk about layers and um, sediments and aeolian forces, which is kind of a word they made up for um, wind erosion, um, and so, okay, why don't they go take a better look at these things? Why do they just show us a rock? Uh, they Have they learned nothing? Makes it seem like all the, all the uh, money that's spent on the programs goes to waste. But trust me, there's a bunch of ruins in the background there, which, again, people, when they get time, can blow it up and take a look. And it's also kind of pretty. Perseverance takes very pretty images. And I guess the last one uh, is another... Perseverance one of a nearby, it's nearby to that one uh, above it. That is, um, and same thing. There's that, there's that rock field in the foreground, which obviously the rover couldn't traverse uh, very successfully, so they'd have to go around it. But on the left, in the background, before the nearest hill, uh, you can see there's some more ruins, and then on the other side, there's even more, and. Um, the uh, that's the quick tour of the um, of the images that didn't take very long. Yeah, and the one that's missing is another picture of Gale Crater, but it's from a much earlier frame from Curiosity, and all the attention is drawn to the raw image because uh, it's what shows uh, what matters is what's in the background, which on the original frame, which I mm-hmm. even had the date. I even looked up the date for it, and I downloaded it because it came right out of my raw files. It uh, it was downloaded in August of 2014. And so all that time ago, they were taking pictures of Gale City, but then they were just blurring out the background so you couldn't see it. And I spent considerable time cleaning that one up because sometimes they really don't want you to see what's there. And um, it was, uh, yeah, it's... Well, it, it'll it'll find its way into this um, um, gallery page, I guess, if we can figure out what happened to it. Sometimes they get lost in the wash or something. Okay. <laughs> or, or Keith works secretly for NASA, and it's, he's hiding it because it's so definitive. I don't know. Um, anyway, that takes yeah, that takes care of the pictures. And um, beyond that, I'll um, you should you can just go back to your um, narrative because. Um, like I said, I wasn't I wasn't able to catch much before I got here. I'm just glad, <laughs> just glad the uh, usually I listen to every word, but I like I said I my I've got no reception on my phone or anything else for that matter uh, except for an AM radio uh, at home right now, and I'm trying to figure out why. 
and uh, but that's not something that anyone else needs to worry about. Uh, okay. And I'm, oh. So I'm at a loss to follow up because I I don't know what to say about the uh, that your photos from Utah or uh, anything. Yeah. The, uh, well, I mean, uh, the Utah photos. Did you talk uh, about the? Oh yeah, we we talked about mm-hmm. the face, and uh, I've got stuff. Uh, I do have a link to the my Utah experience PDF that shows the, the uh, pictures that I took and the, the oh, parts, the out of place art or artifacts. And uh, if anybody wants to see that, uh, that's number 14 in my list of stuff. And uh, 13A goes to um, YouTube channel, so you can see the videos that I was talking about for Goddard Space Flight Center and Lewis Research Center, now John Glenn mm-hmm. Center, and uh, the Morgan PDF, Morgan Curve PDF. So those are links that I have. People can look at stuff later if they want to. But I was I oh. I finished with the Badlands Guardian. I was going into Stan Myers and his water-powered car, and. Um, that's when you called about right there. So I was going to pick that yeah, up. Yeah, I heard you talking about I heard Okay, I heard you talking about that. Yeah, oh, before I forget, let me, I have a, I have a, um, a Hoagland anecdote. I don't have okay. a lot of them, uh, but this was when I, this was when I met him. Uh, I was working at a radio station in Los Angeles. It was 1976. Cue that music that people play when they're uh, ramping up the um, Wayback Machine. And I was giving away uh, giving away souvenirs from our station to the people, participants at the Rainbow Rose Festival in Pasadena, which happened mm-hmm. to just be a couple of blocks away from the station. And um, the uh, we were giving away lighters. Uh, remember those? Uh, remember uh, you used to be able to get a, a big lighter in a sort of a wrapper. It was like a fat thing that went around it and it had you know that gave them room to print big logos and things on it so it i never like saw a table it. lighter never saw <laughs> no but you must have seen the lighters yeah um, nice. yeah we had a whole room full of those because the um uh well let's just say some of the prior staff had um been availing themselves of all of those free lighters and they were pulling the lighters out of the sleeves and um Leaving the uh, those wrapping things, um, those collars, uh, in a in a boxes in the uh, storeroom, and we didn't really have anything to give away. The boss was too cheap to give away all the T-shirts because they needed to order some more, so we had very few of those. But we had lots of lighters, and so at the Rainbow Rose Festival, which was all about healthy living and of course no smoking or anything else, uh, we were giving away lighters. But that kind of that kind of fit the K-Rock image, I guess. Uh, anyway, uh, I was walking around, and I ran into this um, strange fellow that was very um, uh, very enthusiastic about the pictures that had been coming back from um, the outer planets. Remember those beautiful Voyager images and stuff? Uh, oh, yeah. The... Um, yeah, and oh, and they had them blown. They had them blown up huge on the walls, and it was it was it was wonderful. But uh, at the JPL exhibit, so I started talking to him, and for some reason, we immediately started talking about life elsewhere. And I had just read um, uh, George Leonard's book, "Somebody Else Is on the Moon," 
and uh, was kind of fascinated by the, um, that was Apollo pictures mostly, and he was saying, you know, look, here's some mining operations in this crater and some machinery in that one. And uh, he seemed to have access to things that most people didn't, even though the pictures in the book were not as good as they might have been. But, um, yeah, Richard's first words were, well, I'm not too sure about that, but I think there might be something on Mars. <laughs> the first thing he said. And I just mm. looked at him and because he hadn't, you know, people hadn't even really heard about the face on Mars at that point. They had just taken the pictures. Um but that's it. That's the that was the, that was how I met him. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Ron. Okay, well that's a, that's a, that, you're you're welcome. Okay, I will listen until I will listen until my phone gives out. Okay, go. Is is anybody else there tonight? Uh, no, I've been I've been talking up a storm to everybody. I hope I haven't been boring them because I'm just about to mm. get into the stuff on the technical side of things. Um, because we were, uh, yeah, we were what going if, the whole thing with the Mars. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I just was. Uh, there's a whole um, there's a lot of motion in the uh, area of developing uh, rovers. You know, they're finally uh, there's finally competition about building some actual people encasing rovers that they can actually travel around in. You know, like the ones in the the movie The Martian or you know, most any other sci-fi movie, you just assume that they're going to have these big land crawlers of some sort that they can use for moving around and doing stuff. And, you know, so far we haven't. The only one that's won an award so far, and I don't know the, I should have looked this up, but I wasn't really thinking I'd be talking in that area. There's there's one that was in the news just a few weeks ago that uh, is the um, the latest one that they've, added to the list of equipment for things like the Artemis program, which is that uh, probably never going to get off the ground uh, lunar program that uh, NASA is working on with Boeing and others. Mm-hmm. Musk, Musk is going to get there first, just like he's going to get to Mars first, and I'm sure he'll come up with a better-looking rover. But the thing looks like a, well, the ones that Apollo used look like golf carts pretty much. You know, and right. it's understandable. But right. We're, but we're, we're coming up on the top of the hour, um, 30 seconds out. So I'm, okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put you on a uh, – I'm going to mute you into the board. But uh, you can hang on, okay? Okay. Right. Bye. You're listening to The Other Side of Midnight. Uh, I'm your host, Keith Morgan, tonight. Um, sitting in for Richard uh, due to the forest fires and stuff going on in this area and – uh, he's is being uh, inundated by smoke and stuff. So <clears throat> we'll be right back after the break.
theothersideofmidnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Search the archives. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Back to the other side of midnight. I'm trying to make these breaks a little bit shorter so we can get a little bit more time in because we're into the last hour. And I hope uh, you guys haven't fallen asleep on me. And I hope I'm giving you some information that you hadn't heard before. And um, we left off with Stan Myers. We were talking about Stan because he came through as a spot. And like I said, he was going out to Ohio, and the reporter from the the local uh, affiliate in Ohio, he was um, he was talking about how Stan had uh, calculated he could drive from L.A. to New York on 22 gallons of water. Stan also said that I the mechanism you could use rainwater, salt water snow didn't matter because it didn't hurt the mechanism now what he was doing was he was using high voltage and resonant frequency and the water was flying apart like crazy it looked like it was boiling at a high rate but it was staying cool the lie has been for the longest time that it takes as much energy to tear the hydrogen oxygen apart as what you get when you combine it back together so you're getting nothing out well if any of you guys remember the the Memorex commercial for the Memorex tape, and they had Ella Fitzgerald hold a note, and it matched the resonant frequency of a Champlain glass, and the glass shattered. It wasn't because she used a lot of energy. She just matched the resonant frequency of the glass, and it started vibrating at its resonant frequency, which then tore it apart. Didn't take a lot of energy. Stan was doing the same thing. The high voltage and the resonant frequency the water tore itself apart like crazy. It was giving off hydrogen and oxygen at a tremendous rate. And then he would send that gas to his carburetor, and off he'd go. That's how he could calculate he could drive from L.A. to New York on 22 gallons of water. Then I get these other geniuses are going, well, isn't gasoline more powerful than hydrogen? No. Gasoline is a hydrocarbon. It's got hydrogen in it. It's just, it's just subduing the true power of the hydrogen. They, and they don't get it. When W was in office, the other George Bush, he said, oh, we're going to promote fuel cell vehicles. A reporter raised his hand and said, uh, where are we going to get the hydrogen from? He said, oh, we're going to get it from gasoline. Duh, 
doesn't that defeat the purpose of getting off the darn oil in the first place? Here's a guy that's got a technique. In that spot, they said that the Pentagon came to him and asked him if he could build a tank that would run on gas or water. He set up a $70 million contract to do that with the Pentagon, a tank that could run on gas or water. And then he wanted the water to come right up to the cylinder before getting converted, and he did it. And if you look at my – if you look at uh, B9C uh, of my pictures under Radio Wood Pictures, because the 9B is actually his device, and you could see the water just boiling crazy when that thing was running. And it's not boiling. It just looked like it was boiling. It was just giving off hydrogen and oxygen at a tremendous rate and staying cool. And then what he's holding in his hand in 9C is he's holding a device to replace your spark plug. And it did the electrolysis so the water would come straight up to the cylinder, get converted, go into the cylinder as gas, and then it would ignite the gas. So it replaced your spark plug. He said it would cost $1,500 to retrofit your car to run on the water. Now, I know I'd be the first one to retrofit my car to run on water for $1,500 because all the money I'd be saving in gas would be great. So what happened to Stan? When he came up with this device to replace your spark plug, OPEC came to him, offered him a billion dollars with a capital B to shelve the device. He refused because he's doing it for all mankind. Then the next thing you know, he's getting death threats and all kinds of stuff. He went to a restaurant to meet with some investors. And the next thing you know, he's jumping up, grabbing his throat, saying they poisoned me. He ran out of the restaurant, got halfway down the street, and dropped dead. Now, conspiracy thing? I no, this actually took place. And as one of our heroes, gone again, trying to do something to help mankind, and people don't want it because it's going to upset the apple cart. So from Stan Myers, we're going to go to Troy Reed. He's another spot that came through. And Troy created what's called the Reed the Reed Magnetic Motor. I'm watching that come through the same control room I was watching Stan Myers come through, but this was days and weeks and months later or whatever. And I'm going, here's this guy. He's got this 10-foot-tall wooden device. It looks like something out of the 1800s, and yet it's producing electricity, enough to run his drill, his vacuum cleaner, his Christmas tree lights, and they just keep running and running and running and running. And I'm going to talk a little bit about it, but I signed a non-disclosure agreement to, not to talk about his device um, because Richard and I went out to see Troy. And we get picked up at the airport by a limousine. And I'm like, who the heck sent a limousine to pick us up? Uh, the, the 10A photograph <clears throat> that I, I took, that's Troy on the right and his son is on the left. I think his son's name was Mike. It's been a while. And this 10-foot-tall wooden device ran off of magnetic repulsion. So how does it do it? 
If you look at the picture, you'll see these gold bands on each side. Those are actually discs, plywood discs that have a band wrapped around them. And on the inside of the disc, there is a circular cutout disc that is connected to a crankshaft that goes between the two inner flywheels. And on that crankshaft are these rods that go up into the top and push springs in these golden PVC pipes that he has on the top. And they set and they and unset on each stroke, like an ink pen top. When you push it one time, it clicks and holds the pen down and pen comes out. Push it down again and it pops out and pen goes back inside the uh, ink pen. Well, in this case, these things were pushing the the crankshafts in such a way that as the magnets approached each other, the magnet, the spring would release on the next stroke, pushing the rod so that the magnets would get pushed past the first repulsion point to the other side, where they then would repel and continue on. He had a feedback loop, a 12-volt battery charger that was underneath that little stand that it's sitting on, and it would feed 12 volts to a little motor in the back that would help keep it in motion. So you had like a feedback loop that would keep this thing running. And it would just keep you, you he started out by cranking it by hand, he'd crank it up, it would get up to a speed that it wouldn't run at and just keep running. And it would keep running and he could run his his appliances, whatever he was doing, until he broke that feedback loop and then it would stop. Now this is supposed to be impossible because it's perpetual motion. The universe is in perpetual motion. Yes, there is such a thing as perpetual motion. You just don't want to accept it. But this is not perpetual motion. This is use, you're using a small amount of energy to tap into a larger source. That larger source is the power within the magnets. And nobody wants to touch that. Oh, it's perpetual motion. No, it's not perpetual motion. The uh, 10B... That's me in my younger years standing next to the reed magnetic motor. In 10C, that's me standing next to his electric car. That he, he took the engine out, dropped in the electric motor, made a plate to hold the, the uh, motor to the uh, automatic transmission so it married together perfectly. Um, most of the stuff in there, no radiator, came out, all of that. So he had just a 12-volt battery and Curtis inverter and some other stuff to make this thing electric and run. Now, what you see in the back of that car is a little trailer. And that was a motorcycle sidecar that was mounted on a two-wheel trailer that he towed in the back of the car. But he had taken an aircraft starter generator. It starts the the engine for the aircraft and then it switch over switches over to become a generator and normally it would put out like maybe uh low voltage and high current or, or high current low voltage i forget which one and 
they said, oh, you won't be able to modify that to do both of these uh, high current and high voltage. It's, it's, that's impossible. But he did it, and the device put out the high voltage and the high current. He mounted this modified aircraft starter generator in the back of the car in that trailer that had the motorcycle sidecar. He connected a motorcycle chain to the generator off the axle. So as he towed this in the back of the car, it would turn a generator and it doing about 35 miles an hour to 40 or whatever above, it would generate enough electricity to charge the batteries and run the electric motor. So you never had to stop the recharge. Again, oh, this is perpetual motion. You can't do this. You can't do that. It works. And when we were there, uh, Richard suggested, he said, oh, um, what you need to do is incorporate that generator, um, that generator inside the car. And once you get that done, then we should probably go forward. And me, instead of speaking up and saying, hey, uh, I think what you need to do is tighten down every nut, bolt, and electrical connection on this so it could withstand a long drive. You pick up the phone, you call Guinness Book of World Records and say, you're going to do the longest electric car drive in history without ever stopping to recharge. And you're going to drive from here in Oklahoma all the way over to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue in D.C. And you're going to hand an ultimatum to the president saying, get the car manufacturers to beat this. And then you're going to drive all the way back to California and then you're going to drive back from California to Oklahoma. And if you make it 400 miles or 800 miles, anything after that, and the car has a problem where you can't make it, you've already accomplished a lot. But I didn't speak up. and I just kind of went along with the program. I rode in the car. And I saw the amperage and, and voltage gauges showing that, yeah, it's charging these batteries. We're moving along. And since that time, he did incorporate it into the car. He actually lost more stuff under the hood and had a better Curtis uh, inverter in there, con converter. And it ran perfectly with the, with the generator inside the car. So he was able to pull it off, but he had some troubles, and he had financing, but then uh, the story is that uh, his wife kind of ran off with his uh, his nest egg that the, fi uh, the backers had given him to work on this technology, and I don't know where he is at this point. I'd really like to talk to him again and talk to his son, but... <clears throat> Uh, I'm not sure where he's at or how to get a hold of him. And the picture 10D, the reason Hoagland and I were picked up at the airport by a limousine is because Troy was the cousin of Dennis Weaver. And that's Dennis Weaver standing next to Richard. And, and for you guys who don't know who Dennis Weaver is, he was... Uh, Chester on 
Gunsmoke. And he also was uh, McLeod on the McLeod uh, show where he was a, I think he was a marshal or, or something like that. God, I can't remember the show. I watched it. Uh, so he's uh, he's an actor who's uh, well known, and he was actually financing Troy for you know make building his car and a whole bunch of other things. Troy was an inventing fool. He had all kinds of things that he had come up with. He had taken these liquid chemicals, stuff that you have in your house, put them together, and you could put styrofoam in this and it would dissolve the styrofoam into the liquid. And once you got enough styrofoam into it, then you'd have almost like a shellac or paste. And then you could take it and you could seal concrete or wood. And when it dried, it dried almost virtually clear. And he had sealed a part of his concrete and he said, yeah, that'll be there for a hundred years. <laughs> but he was one of those guys that, thought outside the box. And we don't have many of those people today. We need more people that can think outside the box and look at things with an open mind. Uh, When I was at High Point and I was, I had electronics class because we didn't have one at Northwestern, but I took electronics. And my electronics teacher he took me further than the rest of the class because he knew I had more experience on with, dealing with electricity and electronics. And he's teaching me digital. He's teaching me AND gates, OR gates, JK flip-flops, that whole nine yards. I'm more learning this technology. And my project was to build a digital clock. And all I was supposed to do was take a 60-cycle sine wave and turn it into a 60-cycle square wave. And I had to build the brute power supply, put the chips together, wire everything. And then once I showed that it worked, then I had to write up my uh, my project. Everybody else had Heath kits, and they're soldering stuff on the printed circuit boards and stuff like that. And they're blowing their stuff up, and I'm coming along, and I'm fixing it for them. So I guess I had that in me in the, <laughs> the whole time. But... It was the stuff that we talked about, my electronics teacher and I. He said, you'd need plates the size of a football field to make a one farad capacitor because capacitors were measured in microfarads, picofarads, and nanofarads, small portions of farad. One farad is a heck of a lot of energy. Now you got these little tiny caps that are one farad. Then you got these capacitors that are like uh, maybe an inch, inch and a quarter in diameter, and maybe three inches long, and they they hold 3,300 farad. That is a lot of energy. And how do they pull this off? Well, some of them are using what's called graphene. Graphene is going to be one of the technologies that's going to revolutionize a lot of stuff. Graphene is really graphite, but it's only one atom layer of graphite, and it's in a hexagonal lattice. You take a second layer of graphene, you lay it over top of the first layer of graphene, off slightly offset by a little bit in degree, 
or fractions of a degree or a degree and a half or something like that. And the superconductive coefficient, temperature coefficient, now goes up rather than down. So if you have superconductivity and you need minus 70 degrees to actually make superconductive material superconductive, now with the two layers, it goes up to maybe minus 50 or higher. You add a third layer, it goes up even higher. And right now, I know that there's at least three guys out there that have room temperature superconductors. Not at minus 70, not at minus 50, minus, minus 30, but 57 degrees Fahrenheit. And that's one of the holy grails that everybody's been looking for. Because if you can reduce the resistance, you can now use the current, can do the work, and you use less energy trying to build up the voltage, and you can do it uh, more efficiently. Anyway, that's one technology that's coming out, the solid-state batteries, quantum glass battery, um, lithium metal battery, uh, the liquid metal battery, and that's those are those are technologies that are just going to change everything. Uh, sapphire and uh, brilliant light. They figured out how the sun works, and the sun is not a freaking fusion reactor. Okay, we were told this by the Palladians. There, it's not a fusion reactor. Okay. They don't see all the neutrinos streaming from the sun that you would get if you had a nuclear reaction going on, infusion. Nope, don't work. But if you know from Club 19.5, you know why it's generating the light and heat that we see and the energy it's putting out. That's why Jupiter, Neptune, and Uranus are all putting out more energy than you're getting from the sun because of the mass and rotation. And these are, these are things that uh, Richard and Earl Torrin uh, put together based on other people before them who come up with um, a lot of this concept and ideas. And they're just carrying on where they left off. But it's hard to get somebody to see something when they think they know it all. So we'll see how this comes out. So uh, number 11, and if you click on that black picture with the white outline, that should open up into a diagram showing how homopolar electrical generation is done. Now, most people, if they know anything about electricity, they know about induction. That's how we generate electricity to power the houses and the lights and everything like that. Breaking the magnetic field of a magnet with a wire or a coil induces current in that wire or coil. That's induction. But in 19, uh, 1881, Michael Faraday discovered that you could get electricity straight from a magnet without using induction. If you take a disc magnet, you put a disc conductor on it, you spin it all as one unit, you'll get a current to flow from the center of the disc to the edge. But it's an inverse of induction. With induction, you get high voltages and low currents. With homopolar electrical generation, 
you get high currents with low voltages. And the current is what does the work. So what he did was he took these high gauss magnets, arrayed them in a drum, and in this case, two drums on his, his little tabletop model there. And he spun these things with a DC motor up to 7,000, 8,000 RPM. He had conduit of mercury going around a slip ring along the outer edge of the drum. That's to take the energy off the edge of the drum. Around the axle, he had another conduit of mercury to take the energy off the center of the drum, off the shaft, the center of the drum. And that's your, your other uh, pole. He said at a tenth of a volt, he had 8,000 amps coming out of this thing. 8,000 amps. It's not the, the, the voltage that kills you. It's the amperage. Uh, when you walk across a carpet and you touch a doorknob, you get hit with anywhere from 4,000 to 7,000 volts. But the current is in milliamps. It's hardly anything, and it won't, it won't hurt you. I mean, it physically feels hard, and it hurts. Oh, God, it hurts. I used to be in an art class at Howard in the wintertime, and we had this big steel press, and it was a steel table. You put our artwork on it, ink it up, put the paper on it, put this felt cover over that, and then this wool uh, cover over that. We'd crank all of this under that roller, and it would press down the paper onto our ink work, and we'd peel it off. We'd have our ink work now transferred over to the paper. But when that thing came out the other side, you walk over and you put your your hand seven or eight inches away from that table, and an arc would jump from that table to your finger, and it would hurt like I, somebody. And I hated that class at that time of the year. But it didn't kill me because it was just low current. But you could have five volts and 30 amps, and that one or one amp, and if it can get across your heart, the voltage is there to overcome the resistance, a lot of current to do the work, but our bodies have too much resistance, so the five volts isn't going to do it. But if for some reason it could get across, you'd be – so finding superconductive stuff is the holy grail because now we can – do without the high voltage and just let the current do the work. And that's one of the things that um, people are looking for. But there's a lot of people out there right now. The, the holy grail right now is solid-state batteries. And solid-state batteries are – conventional batteries have some kind of electrolyte, which is either liquid or gel or or some kind of – um, volatile material that separates the anode and the cathode in the battery. And in a lot of cases, if you puncture the battery, especially with lithium-ion batteries, if you puncture the battery or short it out, it catches fire, it explodes, it does all of this stuff. But solid-state batteries... They, they don't do that. You can shoot bullets through them. You can punch holes in them. You can cut sections off of them. And they don't catch fire. They don't burn up. They don't explode. 
and they're still producing electricity. They hold triple to quadruple the density of conventional lithium-ion batteries. And the, the next thing is, oh, now these guys have the ability to charge these things up in like 15 minutes instead of six hours, five, six hours, 15 minutes. John B. Goodenough, who gave us the lithium-ion batteries, got the quantum glass battery, and I'll talk about that after we come back from the break. And I hope I'm stimulating you guys intellectually. And you're on the other side of midnight, and I'm your host, Keith Morgan. Oh, okay. Where is my audio? I am muted. (laughs) I love it. Okay. Sorry about that, guys. Let me try this again. Uh, I forgot I hit it. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com The other side of midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Listen while you travel or as an environment for your endeavors. $0.08 an episode, $0.02.5 per hour of content. The other side of midnight.com.
and welcome back to the other side of midnight. I'm your host, Keith Morgan, sitting in for Richard C. Hogan. So let's see, what were we talking about? Um, we were talking about the new technology with solid-state batteries, the holy grail that everybody's looking for. John B. Goodenough, who gave us the lithium-ion battery, um, he won a Nobel Prize for that. Um, President Obama gave him an award at the White House for his contribution. Well, he came up with a new type of battery called the quantum glass battery. And the quantum glass battery is a solid-state battery. It holds triple to quadruple the density of lithium-ion batteries. The one thing about this battery is it will charge the maximum in 60 seconds. It is a solid-state battery, so you can shoot bullets through it, punch holes in it. It doesn't catch fire. It doesn't blow up, and it's still creating electricity. Also, with most batteries, as you charge and discharge them, after X amount of cycles, they start to degrade, and you can't get them back up to full capacity over time. But this battery, the more you charge and discharge it, the better it gets. So the best is like 4,000 cycles on lithium-ion batteries, but these, this battery is 150,000-plus cycles, and I don't think there's an end in sight. Then there's another company that's got a solid-state battery, and they're calling it the Forever Battery, and it's using a polymer. Now, I remember back in 1989, there was an article, I think it was 89, it might have been 90, but there was an article about John Hopkins had come up with a polymer battery, plastic battery, two pieces of plastic the size of a credit card with an electrolyte gel sandwich between them. You could charge it up. It would change colors as it charged up. And as it discharged, it would change colors back. And it, it held a pretty good charge. So you could have a credit card size battery that could charge, discharge, and it was all plastic. And then it disappeared. I didn't hear anything about it or anything related to it. But now, now that Elon Musk is kicking everybody in their tush and showing that electric cars are quite viable, everybody's trying to play catch up. Toyota said, oh, well, we're going to go to fuel cell vehicles. Oh, come on. Huh? Because now they've got these discs that hold the hydrogen, and you release it with a laser that will, makes it release the, the hydrogen gas, and now you can use that to, to power, power your vehicle, and you can store these things on shelves, and they don't catch fire, and they don't explode, and things like that, and they're safer. But Toyota woke up. And they realized we have to go all electric. And there's another thing. They could have gone electric a long time ago. California had a carb law. And the carb law stated that they wanted um, 10% of the vehicles on California highways to be zero emissions by 2010. Then the governor got in office and suddenly the carb law got pulled. And GM... Nissan and others had created electric cars because they wanted to sell their cars in California. GM had the EV1, 
and uh, or EV2, I forget which number it was. And they were going to market this. They were leasing the cars to all these people. And then after the carb law got pulled, GM came back, took all the cars back from all the people they were leasing them to. People were saying, we like the car, we'll buy it from you. Nope. Took all the cars back, took all the batteries out of the cars, and shredded the cars to pieces. Why? Because these cars had no consumables. You know, you go to the dealership. Oh, you need new spark plugs, new new fan belts, you need new air filter, oil filter, gas filter. You need antifreeze. You need oil, you need this, that, and that, and that. And they keep coming up with stuff. The brakes on on the car, the electric car, last even longer. I have a Prius. I use my dynamic braking like crazy. And you know how many miles I had before I had to change my front brake pads? Most people go maybe 20, maybe 30,000 miles before they have to change their pads. I went 150,000 miles before I had to change my front pads. I just changed the electric battery, the 208-volt battery to run my car. It's nickel metal. I just changed it last year. This is a 2004 Prius, okay? I had 246,000 miles on that battery before it started to act screwy, all right? This is why they don't want this kind of stuff out there because they can't make money off of it. And most people go, oh, we, we have to do it this way. No, we don't have to do it that way. And then they're saying, well, to charge all these electric cars up, you're going to need be polluting the air more because you're going to have to burn more coal at the power plants to do this, that, and the other. No, you don't need to do that, okay? This technology is standing in the wind, wings to replace this stuff. We could have been on safe nuclear using thorium. But no, they had to go with water reactors. Why? Well, Richard Nixon was from California, and California was doing the water reactors, where Tennessee was doing the thorium reactors, which is also known as molten salt. Molten salt reactors are much safer. They are 2,000% more efficient than uranium reactors, water reactors. Well, why were they making thorium reactors when they had uranium reactors? Well, they wanted to build a nuclear plane, which is kind of stupid. Stupid. If plane crashes, you're going to have radiation everywhere. But using a water reactor, you had too much weight. The, the lead shielding and the water and all of that stuff just made it too impractical to be able to make a nuclear plane. So the guy who created the water reactor, he came up with the thorium reactor. Thorium is more abundant than uranium. It's, we're all surrounded about virtually in the ground. But he came up with the thorium reactor. Now, what makes the thorium reactor more safer? Well, if you guys know about the China syndrome, once you have a thermal runaway in a nuclear reactor, it keeps going, and it would melt through the ground and all the way to the other side to China, theoretically. So, thorium reactor... When the temperature gets too high, the reaction shuts down by itself. And once it cools down to a certain point, it 
heats up again, starts the reaction and starts up again. And then it gets that high temperature again, it shuts down and cools off and then it goes back and forth. It's self-regulating. But they also have a protection where they have a drain plug and the pipe coming from the, the bottom of the reactor to drain out the, the, uh, the coolant and so forth, it goes over to the, the thorium. It goes over to a pipe that goes down underneath the reactor into a holding tank. There's a fan blowing across the pipe, keeping that section of the pipe cool, causing the thorium to solidify and plug the hole. If the power goes out, the fan stops blowing, and the thorium melts the plug, and it drains out into the holding tank. Now, why do we need these water reactors? Well, they produce, their, their, their byproduct is plutonium. And what do they do with the plutonium? Oh, we need weapons. We need atomic bombs, blah, blah, blah. Dumb. What is the byproduct of a thorium reactor. Oh, it's uranium. But wait, it takes the uranium back into the reactor and uses it as part of the fuel, so you really don't have a waste product. Hmm. So why did we go with water reactors? Because Nixon was from California. He wanted all the jobs to go to California. He's, and that's what he did. And they shut down the thorium reactor in Tennessee, but then decades down the road, these guys go in. They said, oh, look at all this paperwork and this, about the thorium reactors. And when they went over it, they realized they had found a gold mine. So now they put it up on the Internet. You got China, Japan, and a whole bunch of other places looking at thorium reactors. Bill Gates starting the company with thorium reactors. Okay, but I think we're well past that by now, but we'll see. We'll see what happens. The technology has been there the whole time, and nobody's, nobody's acknowledged it because, oh, that's impossible. You can't do that. When Pond and Fleischmann came out with fusion in the bottle, they went, oh, no, no, no. You can't be doing that. There's no such thing as cold fusion, and they stomped those guys into the ground. But the French came along, picked them up, took them over, and they, start, they continued their work. And then Nightline does a show about James Patterson and the Patterson power cell. This is old guy has his patents under his belt. He's got patent for making perfect spheres from microscopic to ball bearing size. He took these spheres. He coated them in nickel and palladium. He sandwiched them between two electrodes. He hit them with a high current with water passing over it, and then he dropped the current down to a trickle of milliamps, and he continuously had 1,200 to 1,400 watts of heat going into that water. And that's supposed to be impossible. You can't have a trickle of milliamps going in. And when you dry, blow dry your hair, you've got 1,200, 1,400 watts, and you see the coils glowing like crazy because they're drawing a lot of current. Not milliamps. So how are you heating this water up that's going over these these balls? <laughs> it doesn't make sense. Well, it does. That's the cold fusion thing that Pons and Fleischmann had discovered. And 
We're down to our 15-minute mark here. So our science correspondent, Michael Gilliam, he did the story about uh, James Patterson and the Patterson power cell. And then time went by and people wrote and said, are you going to do a follow-up on the Patterson power cell? Because it aired on Good Morning America and Nightline. So he reluctantly goes back and he checks on them. And he says, oh, they're in a laboratory now. And he said, um, Patterson says that they have a hot water heater manufacturer and a guy from the Federal Nuclear Waste Disposal looking at their device. It's like, okay, I can understand the hot water heater manufacturer, but what is this with the nuclear waste disposal? And Patterson said, oh, yeah, we discovered something really interesting. And he takes this liquid that's radioactive. The Geiger counter is virtually pegging. He pours the liquid into the water that's passing through the power the power cell. And about two hours later, the needle has gone from pegging to almost down to zero and still dropping. It was neutralizing radioactive material. How? Why? I guess that's for the physicists to figure out. But did it go anywhere? I don't know what they're doing now. But that got swept under the rug. Never heard anything else. There are people out there that aren't getting their props for their creations, their technologies, and it just drives me crazy. GM had two fuel cell vehicles outside of ABC one day when I came in early. And I said, so what did you guys do to these things? Oh, we took out the engine. We dropped in an electric motor. We put in a 97-kilowatt fuel cell in a tank to hold the hydrogen. I looked at him and said, do you know about Stan Myers? Yeah. Denny Klein. Yeah. John Kansas. Well, that name doesn't strike a bell. The guy woke up in the middle of the night with an idea for curing cancer. Oh, yeah, the guy burning saltwater with radio frequencies. Yeah, I know all about him. I said, well, if you know about him, that means GM knows about him. If GM knows about him, how come these things are running on hydrogen instead of water? Oh, conspiracy theorists. I said, no, every word that comes out of my mouth is a fact. Oh, well, you know, people come to us with these ideas and concepts, and it takes time to implement them. I said, how hard is it to get a bunch of brains together and go, let's make this work? And when, you know, it was, it was a few days or a week later, this Japanese company introduced their fuel cell vehicle. You drive at 50 miles an hour for one hour on a liter of water. You pour the water into your electrolysis device, the hydrogen goes to the fuel cell, and off you go. And I'm like, isn't this what I was telling the idiot from GM? It's not rocket science. So there's another one. John Kansas. Uh, his, his whole thing was he's, he, was trying to, he was trying to cure cancer because he woke up in the middle of the night with the idea. You float nanoparticles of metal in the body so they attract and attach the cancer cell. You hit the body with a radio frequency heating up the metal in the cancer cell. 60 minutes is a piece on that. And the doctors are all excited. Look at the, here's the rat's tumor before the treatment, here's it after. It's clearly killing the tumor and leaving the healthy tissue alone. But they didn't talk about the other thing he discovered. A friend of his came to him and said, you think this will work with desalinization? And what do we need second to air to live? Water. And if we don't have water in three days, you're dead. And we got all that ocean out there. I told the lady we should be pumping water out of the ocean for drinking, irrigation, and fuel. And she says, well, what if we use up all the water in the ocean? I said, what does that tell you you get when you 
burn hydrogen. You don't get carbon dioxide, carbon monoxide, all these pollutants. You get water vapor. It's clouds. It's going to rain back down. You can't use up all the water in the atmosphere in the, in the, if you wanted to. I said the amount of oil in the ground is a drop in the bucket in comparison to all the water out here. And we should be using that for fuel, not just sitting here going, eh, it's, it's useless. No, it's not. According to Inky, their firestones that ran their celestial chariots ran off of water. So I know I'm I'm probably going off in a never never land. I hope I'm not boring you guys. I hope you you've been listening with intently. Um you should be looking at what's coming. I could see what was coming back in nineteen eighty two, nine eighty five. But nobody else seemed to be paying attention. If I, if I had known then what I know now, I would have hit a million dollars long before now because I would have invested in the things that I saw coming. The things that I see coming now, graphene and brophene, they're going to revolutionize a lot of stuff. Graphene is so strong that if you put it in concrete, you don't need rebarb. If you put it in asphalt, it resists potholes. Brophene is supposed to be stronger than graphene, okay? So we're looking at these things, the, the, super, the supercapacitors and ultracapacitors. They're using graphene. And a whole bunch of graphene companies came on the stock market just last year in their penny stocks. What do you think they're going to go, man? They're going to go through the roof when people realize the potential of graphene and brophene. And they're going to revolutionize how energy is stored. Ambry, another company, they've got liquid metal battery. And it separates into three layers like oil and vinegar, but you've got three layers. One's the cathode, one's the electrolyte, and one's the anode. And it's cheap to make. So we're trying very hard to push forward the next generation technologies. But one thing they can't do is come out with the highly sophisticated stuff like what the Navy filed a patent for, where they created an electropropulsion system that negates inertia. Oh, wait a minute. That's impossible. But yet we've got UAPs dropping from 80,000 feet to 15 feet above the ocean in a second and stopping on a dime, making 90-degree right-angle turns. And where have I heard that one before? So... We are in a new industrial technological revolution. I'm going to make a prediction right here. I'm willing to bet you between now and 2032, we become fully aware and interactive with extraterrestrials. It's going to be water under the bridge, but we have to grow up first. We got to stop thinking we are the know-it-alls and the only thing alone in this universe, and we know every freaking thing when we are still groping We are just getting out of the playpen. And Ben Rich said, hey, 
We got the we have the ability to travel amongst the stars. Who the hell is Ben Rich? He's the head of Lockheed Skunk Works. He said we have the ability to travel amongst the stars. If you've seen it on Star Wars or Star Trek, we've been there, done that, found it wasn't practical. Practical. He said there was a flaw in the math, but we figured it out. We could take E.T. home tomorrow. But he said these things are locked up in such black projects, it would take an act of God to get them released. And even Bob Lazar said that when he was working at S4, he said that they got rid of all the Russians when they figured it out. He didn't know what they had figured out. He said something came about because they got rid of all the Russians. I met this Russian guy on a plane when I was going to Dallas, Texas to spend the, the summer with my son. And I'm walking down the aisle, and I've got my shirt on that says the Morgan Curve over the left breast, the picture's on the back. And this old guy says, ah, the Morgan Curve. And he's sitting in the aisle seat, and I said, oh, he's got pretty good eyesight for his age, even though he's wearing glasses. And he says, yeah, that's on Mars in the Sidonia region. And I said to the stewardess, I said, excuse me, I want to sit next to him. Turned out, he says, yeah, I worked at one of the uh, lakes out there in Nevada. I said, you worked at Area 51? He said, no, no, there's other lakes out there. I said, Papoose Lake? Oh, uh, you didn't hear that from me. You didn't hear it from me. Papoose Lake, in other words, is S4, where Bob Lazar said he worked, okay? This guy was Russian. He said, you're probably wondering why I'm talking with a with a southern accent. And I said, no, I really don't notice accents unless they're really heavy. He said, well, I got it from the rednecks I was working with out there. And he said that he was a theoretical physicist, but he never finished his degree because Grauman came along and hired him up immediately. And he was the one who was on the team that came up with the fuel for the SR-71 Blackbird. Then he tells me that nature makes this natural parabola, and that's how the lens in your eye is created. And he said – that they had to grow a ceramic lens for the SR-71 Blackbirds a reconnaissance camera. And I'm going, grow a ceramic lens? He said, yeah, that was the easy part. He said the hard part was getting it to stop from growing, but they figured it out. Because when you're moving at Mach 3, the air friction over the lens will cause the lens to melt, warp, and distort. A ceramic lens can take the heat and be fine. And I was I was like, listen to this guy. And I'm like, this guy is one of those un, unsung heroes that will never get his props for probably decades after he's gone. Because they're not going to let you know anything about what these guys were doing. I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty confident we have a base on Mars, we have a base on the moon, and these guys have been traveling back and forth. I went out on the roof of a parking lot going back to my car, and I look up in the sky and I, because I hear these jets, and here's this four-engine jet with like three or four fighter jets following behind it, and I'm going, oh, these guys must be doing an in-air refueling operation. And then I see this weird ring in the clouds up in front of them, and these guys go into this ring, 
and all the sound goes away. And I'm expecting to come out the other side of the clouds or something. Nope. And I'm going, what the heck did I just see? They've got the technology, but they've been BSing us for the longest time. We, It's time for us to, to really take back the reins and say, okay, we're tired of listening to you guys tell us crap because we know you're full of it. You know, it's like when you get those telemarketers and they say, oh, this is so-and-so from such-and-such. That's not what your telephone number says on my caller ID, and I'm supposed to believe a word coming out your mouth? think so, uh, but what do you do? Uh, it's, it's what they feed us. What we take in, we have to take it in with a grain of salt, and we have to look at the evidence and not just believe in something. Put the facts together. And we will see what's going on. But if we just sit back and, oh, nothing's going on, and we ignore it, they're going to keep us in the dark. There's two space programs. Flying into space on a flame, and another one where we're flying into space on anti-gravity or electropropulsion systems. But they're never going to let us know this, but they can't move into that next generation technology until – they admit where the hell the first technology came from. I'm tired of the BS. And we're at the end of the show. I'm sorry, guys, but as Richard said, second star on the right, uh, excuse me, left, or whichever side, it's straight on till morning. It's nice talking to you guys. I'll see you later. 